I am holding vigil, waiting for my pick in a dynasty startup in hopes of drafting Stefan Diggs. I love Stefan Diggs right now. New article up on playerprofiler.com by Andrew Persanyi talks about how Stefan Diggs became a dynasty by low. When I read the article's first draft, I thought, why is Stefan Diggs in this article? Stefan Diggs is not at a low point. How could Stefan Diggs be at a low point? He's had one of the most productive careers through two years as an NFL wide receiver. In the history of the NFL, 2015, 11.5 fantasy points per game. 2016, 14.9 fantasy points per game. Double-digit fantasy points per game as a rookie and as a sophomore. That's an incredible accomplishment, and it's even more impressive when you realize, oh, he came into the league as a young rookie. 21 years old in 2015, 22 years old in 2016. So Stephon Diggs looks like an Amari Cooper-level prodigy at this point, yet I'm currently in the Ultimate Dynasty Podcast Startup, which is a league that consists only of Dynasty Podcast hosts. Think about that. A 12-man league comprised solely of fantasy football podcast hosts, and not just fantasy football, fantasy football dynasty league. The fact that the dynasty niche has enough podcasts to support its own league is all you need to know about the oversaturation of fantasy football shows in the podcast ecosystem. So in a league comprised only of Dynasty League podcasters, Amari Cooper was pick number five, and we are now at the beginning of the fourth round. Three more picks before my pick. And Stefan Diggs has yet to be selected. This is a super flex league, so a lot of quarterbacks are being drafted. But Keenan Allen, Todd Gurley, Travis Kelsey, and Sammy Watkins were all drafted ahead of Stefan Diggs. And we have Stefan Diggs ahead of all of them on the playerprofiler.com dynasty rankings. We have Stefan Diggs in the top 10 for all the reasons I just outlined. Also, I believe that the route tree that Stephon Diggs has mastered, those intermediate routes, I believe that's a better fit for what Teddy Bridgewater brings to the table. Sam Bradford can throw the ball deep, but he lacks mobility in the pocket. Stephon Diggs is one of the best intermediate route runners in the league, and Teddy Bridgewater, assuming he has full mobility in his knee in 2017, will be more mobile than Sam Bradford, and Stephon Diggs will be his safety valve receiver, the guy he looks for on third downs, the guy he looks for when he escapes the pocket. So I believe that Stephon Diggs and Teddy Bridgewater are perfectly suited for one another. They complement each other incredibly well, and Stephon Diggs is poised for a career year in 2017. It just makes sense. Look at his career arc. As a rookie, 11 fantasy points per game. As a second-year receiver, 15 fantasy points per game. And it was well over 15 for much of the season. In fact, until week 17, Stephon Diggs was a WR1 in fantasy. So many of you lashing out at me on social media for insisting that Stephon Diggs was a WR1 in fantasy earlier in the season and he would be a WR1 at the close of the season. Well, you were right. I was wrong. Stephon Diggs was not a WR1. He was a WR2. He the 13th most productive wide receiver in the NFL on a per-game basis in 2016. He missed WR1 status by 0.4 points. 
That's what I was wrong by. 0.4 points. And I believe Stefan Diggs would have posted something closer to 16 or 17 fantasy points per game had he not suffered groin and knee injuries in the second half of the season. The decline in Diggs' production correlates with his second half injuries. All Stefan Diggs needed were three receptions for 35 yards in order to be a WR1 last year. Just three more receptions and 35 additional yards, and Stephon Diggs would have been a WR1 in fantasy in his age 22 season. An incredible accomplishment, albeit in a down year for the wide receiver position. So if I had bet money that Stephon Diggs was going to post a WR1 season in 2016, I would have lost money. It would have been a bad beat. But if we're looking at my bankroll, how much money did I make playing fantasy football last season? The answer is nobody cares. And if you do care, you shouldn't care. Because if you do care how much money fantasy analysts that spend most of their time talking into microphones make when they play fantasy football, then you're not focusing on the right details. Because the idea that the tips that fantasy football analysts give you throughout the year, the specific tips based on the players they're playing in a particular slate, if you think you're going to make significant amounts of money building lineups based on the tips you're getting from fantasy football radio hosts, then you're a fool. And if any fantasy football radio host comes out and tells you how much money they make and you believe them, you're a fool. But this is what I've been seeing since the close of the regular season. Unprecedented bragging on social media. Fantasy football analysts, radio show hosts bragging about how much money they make. So I read these tweets and I'm scratching my head thinking, why would you disclose how much money you make to the public? That just defies common sense. Ask any accountant, should I post my worth or my income on social media? They would say, of course not. Why would you think that's a good idea? But if you're investigating what would lead someone to post their income on Twitter, go back in time in the conversation, you go, oh, I see what's happening. This person feels threatened. This person's lashing out. This isn't merely a marketing ploy. This person is agitated. And what I'm seeing is not just, hey, I make this much money. It's, hey, I make a lot of money playing Daily Fantasy, and I'm sure you don't. You must live in a rural town. You must be poor. You must live with your parents. Unfiltered braggadocio while mocking those that are challenging your aptitude at playing daily fantasy. I know what you're thinking. Talking about how much money you make is lame. Always. Without exception. And it certainly reveals an insecurity, but when it comes to my fantasy football experts, it's good to know if they're making money or not. I don't want to follow the advice of someone that's not making money. So I'll lay it out for you. And this is not just a DFS conversation. This is in every walk of life, every industry, everyone you encounter. And those that are truly making a significant amount of money in any particular industry are likely exploiting an inefficiency. And if they were to expose that inefficiency to the public, they would lose their competitive advantage. There's no incentive for those that truly have a money-making scheme that works to ever share it. And number two, you can never know how much money an individual truly makes. What if they provide a bank statement? Well, they could have multiple bank accounts. What if they provide a tax return? Well, maybe all the losses are tied up on a business tax return. You don't know. You're never going to know. So stop trying to know. Some things in this world you're never going to know. You're never going to know how much money someone makes. Just know that. 
I don't know exactly how much money my parents make. I don't know exactly how much money my best friends make. And I never will. And that's fine. And you'll never know for certain how much money a DFS expert, in quotes, makes playing Daily Fantasy. And furthermore, those who claim to share with you how much they're making are also more likely to lie about it. So when attempting to gather that kind of information, it's fraught with paradox. It's a fool's errand. And that's okay because that information isn't helpful anyway. Because how much money someone actually made playing DFS at any particular year doesn't matter. It's not going to help you decide whose advice to trust so nobody should care how much money anyone's making in fantasy sports. Now, I will share with you that I don't play in high-stakes leagues. The only leagues with a buy-in over $100 that I play in, I did happen to win this year. I did make money playing fantasy football, but no one cares, and it doesn't matter. Because the leagues in which I won, I shouldn't have even won. I didn't deserve to win those leagues. We talked about the Roto Underworld Listener League that I won. That team didn't even belong in the playoffs, much less win the championship. But things broke right for me, and I got lucky. That's how it happens for a lot of fantasy gamers on a year-to-year basis. Variance is high. That's why it's very difficult to be a professional fantasy player. Most people can't do it. The landscape is too competitive, and there's too much variance year to year. Just can't do it. It's just, it's just impossible. A handful of people can make real money doing it, like Condia, and that's about it. But Condia is not coming on and talking about how much money he's making. He doesn't have to prove to anyone how smart he is. But those with radio shows and podcasts feel the need to constantly demonstrate their skills by flaunting their winnings, flaunting their income. And those are the individuals I would trust the least because it's very difficult to make money playing DFS. The industry is incredibly competitive. The fantasy platforms are taking more and more rake out of the pot. And more and more DFS players are looking around like Mike McD in Atlantic City going, what are we doing here? We're just a bunch of rounders stealing each other's bankrolls. So it is possible that someone's going to make a successful career playing Daily Fantasy, but it is a grind. It is hard work. That has to be your sole focus. There's two routes to success for someone in the fantasy football business. You can be on the talent side or the business side, but you can't be wildly successful at both. It's not possible. If Condia had a show on Sirius XM Satellite Radio and he had podcast, do you think he would be as successful as he is? No, it's not possible. If instead of working on a show sheet, preparing my notes for the show, I was instead researching lineups, well, the show would suffer. Eventually, you're going to have to make a decision. So whenever the on-air talent claims to have a process that allows them to line up all the winners, and they're going to share them with you next. That's a dead giveaway that that person is a charlatan. The more bombastic the person is, the more bluster, the more likely that person is to be bottling snake oil and selling it as medicine. And we know it when we see it. Human intuition is a powerful thing. When you see the braggadocio, when you see the bullying, pretending to know how much money others make compared to themselves and then mocking them for it. Our intuition knows, wow, okay, this person is not as advertised. I sit here knowing how easy it is to identify these people. Their insecurities are so transparent. And I think, how could anyone fall for it? And then I'm reminded who our president-elect is. The sheer greasiness. It's just so overt. Especially now that DFS has been exposed for what it is, sports gambling, 
We talked about this with Drew Dinkmeyer. DFS is now widely considered gambling because, hello, it is gambling. Now those that are positioning themselves as the gambling gurus are no different than the sportsbook gurus that will give you the three locks for the weekend. That's the sportsbook tipster archetype. We all know that guy with the braggadocio, with the bluster and the bullying. None of this is a surprise. These are the Donald Trumps of fantasy who don't want to talk about process. They want to talk about results. We're the opposite here. We are building a platform that helps you go out and succeed at fantasy football. And we get lots of emails sharing success stories with us. I made X amount of money using your weekly projections and your DFS lineup genius this week. Thank you, Player Profiler. Thank you, Matt Kelly. But we're not touting our success stories online because that's missing the point. And if you're going to tout your success stories, if you're being honest, I believe you also should share the testimonials from those who come back and say, hey, I played a few GPP lineups based on your recommendations. They failed and I gave up. But those messages never get shared by anyone. So if you're not going to share them all, don't share any of them because it's lame and it's missing the point. My favorite anecdotes are from listeners and users of Player Profiler who come and say, great news. I implemented this strategy based on these fundamentals and I had great success. I'm not asking anyone to trust in my genius. We are laying all the information in front of you via playerprofiler.com and via Roto Underworld Radio as well as all the supporting material explaining how and why College Dominator was created and is relevant, how and why Agility Score is calculated and why it matters. And we're going to bring people like Drew Dinkmeyer on the show because those are the individuals in the industry that I have vetted for you. I'm never going to bring on Tommy from Queens. It's never going to happen. That guy's never coming on the show because I vetted that guy. And I've decided he's full of shit. But when you read Drew Dinkmeyer's content, when you listen to him on podcasts and you follow him on Twitter, you realize, oh, this guy has a great understanding of the fundamentals. And you bring him on for that reason. You don't bring him on because he makes X dollars a month. That would be missing the point. And I've learned recently that my father-in-law is a buzzard. The show's available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Podkicker. Most platforms, most devices, you can get Roto Underworld Radio. And my wife's father has Stitcher, and he started listening to the show, and he's become a regular listener. And I don't know exactly what to think about this. He's listening right now. Mark, I love the idea that you're listening to the show, even though you don't play fantasy football. That's an incredible compliment. But sometimes we talk about topics on the show that aren't necessarily family-friendly, so it makes me a little uncomfortable, but I weigh the pluses and minuses. I think it's a good thing that my father-in-law listens to the show. It's a great case study. Someone who doesn't even play fantasy football, who generally finds me obnoxious, is still compelled to listen to the show. That's amazing. Think about that. We're talking about an in-law who doesn't play fantasy football, finds this show entertaining. Whoa! And he loves that I have the courage to criticize members of this industry. And I must say, it doesn't require any courage on my part. I don't sit down in front of the microphone and think, oh boy, I have to summon the courage to criticize Michael Fabiano from NFL.com. It doesn't take any courage whatsoever because it's not serious. 
So I'm hoping in 2017, more podcasts will feel more comfortable criticizing other podcasts and other writers. And as you can tell from today's show, we are starting 2017 hot. And we will be even more critical of members of this industry this season. Because if no one else is going to do it, fine, I'll do it. Once other podcasters start critiquing the work of their peers, at that point... I will throttle back on my criticism. But Mike Clay just wrote an article listing 32 players that he believes are breakout candidates for 2017, one for each team. And the representative he chose from the Saints was Michael Thomas. Like that happened. So 2017 is not going to be a kinder, gentler Matt Kelly. Oh no, buckle up. Especially you, Grandpa. But as I sit here in early January, summoning the courage to torch the landscape with a fiery inferno of hot takes and honest criticism, we should harken back to the best and the worst takes of the 2016 season. We've determined that Ryan Tannehill can't play, that the Miami Dolphins are in quarterback purgatory, and they will remain there as long as Ryan Tannehill is under center, getting every coach that's touched him fired. I mean, Ryan Tannehill is the Medusa of NFL quarterbacks. I mean, he looks the part. He looks beautiful. But when he turns his head and you stare in those blue eyes, as a coach, you turn to stone and you get fired. And they have to bring a dolly onto the practice field and wheel you out because you're a statue. Ryan Tannehill is an NFL quarterback statue who turns coaches into unemployed statues. No other Dynasty player ranking service has Ryan Tannehill outside the top 25. No one would dare but playerprofiler.com. Because we're on year five now of the Ryan Tannehill experiment, and all we've experienced is pain and suffering. Where's Joe Philbin right now? Get Joe Philbin on the phone. Let's call Joe Philbin. Anyone that has Joe Philbin's phone number, send it to me. RotoUnderworld at gmail.com. Email me Joe Philbin's phone number. I want to talk to Joe Philbin. Where are you, Joe? Is he employed? Does he work for a team now? I haven't been following Joe Philbin's career. Let me know where he ended up. Whatever happened to Joe Philbin, Ryan Tannehill did it to him. Because Joe Philbin looked good when Aaron Rodgers was his quarterback. Ryan Tannehill can't play. It was clear that Ryan Tannehill can't play in 2013. Then Ryan Tannehill had a handful of impressive games in 2014, and you were hooked again, and he was reeling you back in. Ryan Tannehill then posted below average efficiency across the board. All advanced efficiency metrics on playerprofiler.com told you in 2015 that Ryan Tannehill is a backup caliber NFL quarterback and no team, even a team with the 85 Bears defense or the early 2000s Ravens defense or the 2015 Broncos defense, even those teams would fail to win a Super Bowl with Ryan Tannehill under center. Ryan Tannehill can't play the position at a level of competence in which you can build a franchise around him. He just can't. 
and it's a failure by the Miami Dolphins player personnel department not self-scouting properly and identifying Ryan Tannehill as a player that needs to be replaced. Because in the last draft, instead of drafting an offensive lineman, they could have drafted Paxton Lynch, or they could have waited a few more rounds and drafted Dak Prescott. They didn't do that. Every single offseason, the Miami Dolphins have been going all in with 6-7 offsuit. And everyone at the table is looking around thinking, what the hell are you doing? So we've been right all along about Ryan Tannehill. The most right. As right as you could be. It's not just being right or wrong. What we seek to do on this show is to be the most right on a player. But in doing that, you leave yourself exposed and open to the possibility that you're the most wrong. Ah, Miami, the fraud capital of the United States. But Miami's also the dance party capital of the United States. Let's kick it up a notch with some dance parties and some funerals. Jarek McKinnon, 18 carries, three receptions on five targets, a 68% opportunity share, five red zone opportunities, 95 total yards, six evaded tackles, one touchdown, 18.5 fantasy points per game. What do you have to say about that, Michael Fabiano, who was recommending fantasy gamers pick up Matt Asiata, not Jarek McKinnon, after a lot of research? What do you have to say about that, Mike Clay, who called me ignorant for thinking that Jarek McKinnon would break out and not concerned in any way whatsoever that he would be thwarted by a Matt Asiata committee. You two can eat it! Jarek McKinnon. Jarek McGarvey won. RB1, RB1, RB1! RB1! Zero RB! Ugh. Eat it! Did you really think that we weren't gonna have a Jarek McKinnon dance party? After we were so right, and so many high-profile experts were so wrong. After an RB1 week with a 70% opportunity share and five red zone touches? <laughs> of course! Of course, it's party time! Living that zero RB life. Jarek McKinnon. No, Jarek McKinnon. I can't even say the word, Jarek. Every time I say it, Jarek McKinnon, like a Jarek McKinnon, a positive jolt of energy just shoots up my spinal cord into my extremities, and I just tingle. Do you own Jarek McKinnon in any dynasty leagues? I do. I have him yes! in two leagues, and uh, 
both were from both were from rookie drafts, so so I can't say I got him after the fact. But uh, I'll tell you what, when when I watched that game last night and looking at it again today, the thing that got me most excited, not just the touches, but he had five red zone touches, which I think was the thing where everyone was a little worried. So to me, it well, just adds to the excitement. I was like, oh my God, they're actually using him in the red zone. Easy on the everyone. I wasn't worried. We were very vocal <laughs> in our not worrying. And then Jarek McKinnon has four red zone touches and Matt Asiata has one red zone touch because Matt Asiata has one role, the uber short yardage back. Goal line carry from the four-yard line, it's McKinnon. But if they're on exactly the one-yard line, in the off chance the team is exactly on the one-yard line, then yes, Matt Asiata will be in the game. Just like with the New Orleans Saints, John Kuhn will be in the game. But last time I checked, George, Mark Ingram was a really valuable running back. And so if Jarek McKinnon is merely playing, the Mark Ingram role for the Minnesota Vikings, a more athletic version of Mark Ingram. That's exciting. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. I know. I know. I know. I know what you're thinking as you're tuning in today, Tuesday, October 11th, 2016. You want a Cameron Meredith dance party. I know that's what you want, and I know that's what you expect. I know! I know! It makes perfect sense that when the deepest of deep, 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 deep sleepers would hit in the most epic way, winning our listeners tens of thousands of dollars, I've received a number of lineups cashing thousands of dollars on DraftKings and FanDuel. Why? Because they featured Sammy Coates and Cameron Meredith. This is cause for celebration. It is. I don't dispute that. Most of you are tuning in expecting to hear a Cameron Meredith dance party naturally, because of course you are. That's what I do. When the number five receiver for the Chicago Bears becomes a starting receiver and goes out and posts nine receptions on 12 targets for 130 yards and a touchdown. <laughs> How could you not turn the music up and dance around the room when that happens? Of course, that's what you expect. But I don't think it's a good idea. We just did a Jarek McKinnon dance party last week. I don't want to be known as the guy that does dance parties every week. The listening public is going to grow weary of the dance party very soon if they haven't already. I understand there's a number of sicko diehards in this audience who would love to have a dance party every week. I know! I've heard from you! You're excited about the inevitable dance party that you're going to hear today. And I'm here to tell you it's not going to happen. I don't want to be that podcast host that's constantly defaulting to my hobby horse segment device. Oh, another player we touted broke out. Hey, told you so. Hey, dance party. Turn the music on. Dance parties need to be special and there needs to be a surprise element. You can't turn the show on knowing with definitive certainty that there will be a dance party because at that point, the mystique of the dance party has evaporated. It's gone. Then it just becomes another regular segment. We criticize the other fantasy shows frequently for stale formats. 
walk through the box scores on Tuesday, talk about the matchups on Thursday. Rinse, repeat. Rinse, repeat. Rinse, repeat. If we did a Cameron Meredith dance party, we would just be rinsing and repeating. Rinsing and repeating. Oh, it's Tuesday. Must be another Fantasy Mansion dance party. I've heard all the dance parties I want to hear. I'm not tuning in for this episode. If he decides to do something original, maybe I'll tune in. But my fear is the Fantasy Mansion dance party is going to become cliche. And I don't want to be just another cliche fantasy football podcast host. That's not me. One of the primary goals of the show is originality. And if we did a Cameron Meredith dance party, we'd be slipping into default segment redundant radio. Default segment redundant radio. Unoriginal redundant radio. And I'm not going to do it. You have to understand, I'm conflicted about this. Because on the one hand, I strive for originality. On the other hand, I strive to please the audience. And there's a group of vocal listeners who really want a Cameron Meredith dance party. You all started him last week. You're excited. You want to celebrate. I get it. I did too. I started him in the Roto World Expert League. Crushed. I get it. A completely unknown wide receiver with a 1032 95th percentile catch radius is promoted out of obscurity and somehow finds his way into the starting lineups of Roto Underworld Radio listeners and posts nine catches for 130 yards and a touchdown? If there was ever an occasion to turn on the house music and dance around the room, Cameron Meredith's Week 5 performance represents the best possible reason to party. And that's the reason we're not going to party. It's going to be no celebration. We crushed a grand slam with Cameron Meredith, and we're going to act like we've been there before. Enough dancing around the bases like a rookie baseball player just called up from AAA. We're going to smash a home run. We're going to set the bat down, and we're going to casually jog around the bases. No jumping up and down after we touch third base. No histrionics. Take our batting gloves off, put them in our back pocket, and walk calmly to the dugout. If we're going to be calling players like Cameron Meredith every week, we need to start acting like we've been there before. And there were a lot of other impressive performances from week five. I want to talk about those today. And I want to look forward to week six and and talk about which players you should be adding from your free agent pool who could erupt this coming weekend. So we're moving on from Cameron Meredith. I'm actually serious about this. 
we need to act like we've been there before. I'm reading the comments on YouTube and Reddit. Matt Kelly is obnoxious. He only wants to talk about the players he was right about. He doesn't want to talk about the players he was wrong about. All he wants to do is tell everyone how smart he is. Matt Kelly is the worst. He is a blowhard who thinks he's the smartest guy in the room, but he's not. He's a clown. That's the perception. Some people have that perception. I don't want to feed that perception with one victory lap after another. Never mind that I've never said I'm smarter than other analysts. The confident position from which I speak is often misconstrued as arrogance. And these dance parties are not helping. But I've never said, I'm smart. I'm a genius. I'm definitely not. And I've never uttered anything close to that on these airwaves. But these dance parties only perpetuate this perception and they need to end. I am putting a moratorium on the dance parties as of this moment. We're closing the club down now that we've had our Cameron Meredith dance party. Club closed. DJ, go home. People with the body paint and the platform shoes and the cages, come on down. Put a jacket on. We're heading out. Shutting this place down. It's killing my credibility on social media. Cameron Meredith just happened to work out. We got lucky. We're not any smarter than anyone else. Let's move on and talk about other players. No more dance parties. Ah, fuck it. I love Cameron Meredith! But it wasn't all happy times on Roto Underworld Radio. gathered today know that now is not the time to celebrate granted most of our fantasy teams are 2-0 and and many of those early round running backs have fallen and our running backs Melvin Gordon Jarek McKinnon 
Tevin Coleman, Charles Sims are rising. We are winning, but we have also lost. Last Sunday, we lost the best of us. The best there's ever been. He was an undersized running back. No one thought much of him. <laughs> Told myself I wouldn't do this. He only had one dream. To play football at the University of Nebraska. Devoted the first part of his life to achieving that goal. And he failed. He failed. He didn't make it. They looked at him and they said, no. You're not a Division I college running back. So he said, okay. I accept that assessment. But I will continue doing what I love, playing football at Chadron State. And then a funny thing happened. He did really well. He did so well. He completely dominated every other football player on the football field at his level of competition, even though he was still the smallest person on the field. Always the smallest person on the field. Didn't matter because he had the talent and he had the will. You put those two things together, the ability and the will, and a man standing five foot eight, 160 pounds, can dominate. So after dominating at Chadron State, he got a call from, of all places, the University of Nebraska. <laughs> And they said, we're having a pro day. Would you like to participate? And he said, yes, I would love to participate. Thank you. He wasn't embittered. He was appreciative. <laughs> and at that pro day, he ran a sub 4-4-40 and posted a 125.1 80th percentile burst score on playerprofiler.com. <laughs> But was that enough to be drafted? No. Did that stop him? No! <laughs> At this point, he was emboldened. He knew every time he stepped on the football field, he was the best player on the field. Always. If that was your reality, would you give up if you were undrafted? He didn't. <laughs> He scheduled tryouts. He joined practice squads. He scheduled more tryouts. He joined more practice squads until he was finally signed to an NFL roster. And what did he do? He succeeded. <laughs> and he became the running back we're always looking for. <laughs> Available in the later rounds. Available in the waiver wire. <laughs> Electric in space. A phenomenal pass catcher. He embodied everything that you look for in a zero RB back. <laughs> and what did fantasy footballers do? 
they dismissed him. He was never a first-round pick. Ever! Ever! That's right! He was never a second-round pick. He was never a third-round pick during his entire NFL career. All this man did was produce PPR fantasy points. You know he did! You know he did! And no one appreciated him while he was here. While he was with us. And now he's gone! <laughs> he's gone! He's gone! And I don't know if he's coming back! And it breaks my heart! <laughs> he was a top 12 running back in 2013. And then what was to be a surefire RB1 in fantasy season in 2014 was ripped away from him. <laughs> Did he complain? No, he attacked his rehab with a vigor. As has always been his way. His way. Always his way. Not listening to anyone else. Because at every level of competition, he was a success. He was one of the best. Last year, 15.3 fantasy points per game. That was number six in the NFL. And yet, he was being drafted outside the top 60 players on MyFantasyLeague.com <laughs> in 2016. And that's on you, and you, and you, and you, and you. You can't get those draft picks back. That's right! Because whether he's here with us or not, you should have drafted him over Carlos Hyde, and you know it! And he was doing so well <laughs> and he was making all of us regret not drafting him through one week of the season 23 fantasy points against kansas city <laughs> on track for another huge performance against jacksonville <laughs> and then he was gone He was here! <laughs> the quintessential zero RB running back was here, producing for us! And now he's gone! He's gone! He's gone! Original Zero RBG Danny Woodhead <laughs> I'm gonna miss you Danny I'm gonna miss you It all started with Danny Woodhead And now he's gone We ended up starting Moncrief. We lost in the playoffs. Party's over. We're sad. We might as well go wander over to that funeral that's going on. The Jeff Fisher comedy funeral. No more funny Jeff Fisher gifs. 
No more Jeff Fisher jokes! Goodbye, sweet prince. Heir to the unintentional comedy throne. Goodbye. We are all worse off now without Jeff Fisher in our lives. The world will be a less funny place in the absence of his unintentional comedy. We will be less than without him. So today we mourn the loss of Jeff Fisher. But Jeff would want us to move on, to move forward, to continue to mock NFL coaches. That's what he would want. But before we do that, I want to remember the best of times that we had with Jeff Fisher. Remember the time that Pat Doherty came on with me and compared the Rams offense to an anti-art movement urinal installment. I try to think of a good thing to compare the Rams offense to, by the way, like some sort of like anti-art movement. You know, like one of those things where you go <laughs> where you go into a museum and like there's like a urinal glued to the wall, like in the middle of the gallery, and they're like, Yeah, this is art. Like some guy, this is a big installation here, this urinal in the middle of the gallery. No, guys, guys, you don't get the Rams. It's postmodern. <laughs> you don't get exactly. it. Exactly. They're post offense. <laughs> Right there, one of my favorite moments in show history. At first, you celebrated, yes, one of the most incompetent individuals in the league is gone. The league will be better for it. But once you reflect on it a little bit longer, you realize whoever is the new Rams coach won't be nearly as funny as Jeff Fisher. The league will be a more boring place without Jeff Fisher. Okay, let's do some more dancing. We're analyzing a fake game! This is a fake game! Why wouldn't you celebrate fake game success? We are the professional wrestling of sports gaming! That's what fantasy football is! Fantasy football is less serious than professional wrestling. Because at least professional wrestling is in and of itself a pseudo-sport. We're not even a sport! We're a fake game on top of another sport. And I'm supposed to take it seriously? I'm supposed to temper my enthusiasm? What the fuck are you talking about? What? I need to tone it down. Shh. This is fantasy football. This is serious stuff. You can't be waving your arms around and raising your voice like that. Okay, I think this victory lap has gone on long enough. Okay, okay, that's enough. Enough out of you now. You're gonna be wrong next week. Be careful. <laughs> no! Fuck that! It's a fucking celebration, bitches! Reasons to dance in 2016, including Tyrod Taylor, aka Russell Wilson East. 
We've been updating our rankings constantly, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. Go there to follow along with the show. So as we talk about players, you can see where they're ranked. And the player that's risen the most in both the seasonal and dynasty rankings, in the absence of any relevant player news, is Tyrod Taylor. LaShawn McCoy is LaShawn McCoy. Charles Clay is Charles Clay. Robert Woods is going to be Robert Woods. Sammy Watkins, fingers crossed, looks like he will start the season healthy. But Tyrod Taylor's stock is rising. And for me, it's rising quickly. He's now a top 10 fantasy quarterback in seasonal and dynasty leagues. He's now my number seven dynasty league quarterback. And here's why. We've talked on this show for many episodes about how it's possible that Russell Wilson could unlock his fantasy potential if the Seattle defense collapses or the coaching staff decides to change its philosophy and to pivot to a pass-heavy instead of a run-heavy scheme. I believe it's unlikely either of those two things happen in Seattle, but I believe it is likely that one of those things has already happened in Buffalo. When you look at Tyrod Taylor, his efficiency in his first year as the starting quarterback for the Bills was strikingly similar to Russell Wilson's in his first year in Seattle. But unlike Seattle, Buffalo's defense is in the midst of a collapse as we speak. There have been very few noteworthy news blurbs about the Buffalo offense this offseason, but there has been a number of news blurbs about the defense, and they've all been bad. The Buffalo defense has already crumbled. What does that mean? That means Buffalo is going to need to score more points than they did last year. That means they must finally unshackle Tyrod Taylor from the run-heavy scheme chains that prevented him from fully ascending last year. The team only threw the ball 507 times. That was 30th in the league. Tyrod Taylor himself couldn't even eclipse 400 pass attempts, and yet still posted 19.7 fantasy points per game. That was 7th in the league. How is that possible? Because of his incredible efficiency. Plus 22.8 production premium on playerprofiler.com. That's our situation agnostic efficiency metric. Finished number two in the league behind, you guessed it, Russell Wilson. Across the board, passer rating, total QBR, yards per attempt, air yards per attempt, fantasy points per drop back. Tyrod Taylor, top 10 in the NFL. But now they are injecting volume into his veins. Take an efficient quarterback who was second in the league in carries last year, even while only playing in 14 games. You give him pass volume, and that's how a top 10 fantasy quarterback is made. We had the Roto Underworld Minions Redraft League a couple nights ago, and it's a 2QB league, so I was bidding on bench quarterbacks. I got Jameis Winston for $12, thought that was a deal, couldn't afford to roster any more quarterbacks at that point, and then I saw Tyrod Taylor go for $11, and I was crushed because I have Tyrod Taylor ranked ahead of Jameis Winston in fantasy football in 2016 and he's creeping closer to Jameis Winston in our dynasty rankings Tyrod Taylor or T-Mobile as I like to call him it was a nickname that was floated last year and then dissolved but I'm gonna keep it going because this is America and I can say whatever I want so you should be drafting Tyrod Taylor at the end of every draft just get Tyrod Taylor that's it just do it that that's those are your marching orders And JJ and I told you to stay away from both Cam Newton and Blake Bortles. 
So if you are drafting a quarterback late, is there any chance, any chance at all? I mean, it just point oh one percent chance, just based on upside, just based on the fact that we don't know what we're doing, we don't know anything. You know, we're very humble. Yes. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're not. <laughs> that you would draft Derek Carr. Look, the only reason I would be okay with Derek Carr is because his early season schedule. That that's really the main reason that I would be targeting Carr. But look. We saw last season Carr had a had a, a an obscenely high touchdown rate to start the year, uh, which started to regress. I know part of it was part of it was Amari Cooper's injury, um, but his touchdown rate started to regress at the end of last year. He finished with a 5.6 percent touchdown rate. I did a regression analysis that looked at touchdown rates from one year to the next, and the the, the drop in touchdown rate or a rise in touchdown rate to the to the to the mean. Obviously, in in a in an analysis like this, a guy like Aaron Rodgers is just naturally going to have a higher touchdown rate because he's just better. But generally speaking, players that have had a 5.6 percent touchdown rate, which is what Derek Carr had last season over the last five years, the next year they have a 4.94 percent touchdown rate. So there should be a drop there. I also. If you look at every move the Raiders made this offseason, it was to help the defense and the offensive line. I think that they want more of those positive running game scripts, which is another reason why I'm okay with Latavius Murray, just because even though I don't love Latavius Murray as a player, the the, the situation's definitely right. Uh, so there's reasons that I'm not as optimistic about Derek Carr. And I also, look, I mean, two years ago, or at the end of this rookie season, I wrote an article saying, is he the future of this of this Oakland, Oakland Raiders franchise? And I can't show my face in Oakland anymore after after writing that. But I still think that there's questions. There's plenty of questions. I mean, trolling Oakland Raiders fans with a scathing review of their golden-armed quarterback, Derek Carr. Right, and I had the realization after writing that that, look, I, I know this is the, the brightest thing that they've seen in, in years, so it was probably a little harsh. I mean, I did the same. The, the thing— <laughs> The thing that the thing that's crazy. The thing, but to be fair, Matt. To be fair, I did the same thing with Andrew Luck before last season, and uh, the, the the Colts fans were just as rabid. It's just the quarterback position. Oh no, they're not. Raiders fans are rabid assholes. But but the Colts fans were. Oh, well, to be fair though, the the the, the Luck article I did was then talked about in the indie star so that we had a different demographic that was that was reading that so that that wasn't raiders fans will shiv you in the men's room if they don't like your article true very true but but so so you know with Derek carr i still question i question that whole draft class i question bortles i question Carr. i question teddy i, I mean it's it's i i just i don't i think that a lot of times in football this is specific to these guys especially bortles a lot of times in football we undervalue what an interception does to a team, which is why like the net expected points metric we use is, is pretty important and valuable because one interception is not the same as another interception, but that's the way it shows up on a stat sheet. You know, if you're throwing an interception on third and 15 from, and you throw like a, a basically a punt, right? That's different than throwing an interception like Russell Wilson did in the Super Bowl at the end of, of the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Like that's brutal. Yeah, it's, a, it's a completely different change in win probability and expected points. And, you know, when you when you factor all of that in, the profile of what Derek Carr is so far is just not nearly as good as what people think, because I think the general population gets enamored with touchdowns and they get enamored with touchdown to interception ratio, which has been proven to not correlate to Jack. It's just not a thing. So what you really need to look at is average yards per attempt, average net yards per attempt. Um, and then obviously, you know, when, when and from a fantasy standpoint, you have to look at touchdown rates because those are that's that's something that will regress very quickly. Um, 
whether it's coming from Cam this year, which he's going to regress, and uh, slow down. There's, 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 there's. It, it happens. It's- we know the touchdown rate's going to regress, the rushing touchdown rate, but he could be epic this year. Who, Cam? Yeah. But the thing, so here's the thing with Cam though. He had a 7.1 percent touchdown rate last year, which was like three percent higher than his career average, right? If he, if he's even, if he regresses to what the regression model shows, it would be in like that 5.8% range, which is still really high, but that's still dropping pretty significantly in the touchdown, in the passing touchdown column for a guy like Cam. The thing that we always have to remember is Cam Newton last year was a freak of nature. He was amazing. He balled out. But the problem is in order to be that true QB one or in order to be that MVP, you're putting up mostly an outlier season to begin with. It just that's just the way that it is. It's, there's there's a reason that when Tom Brady throws 50 touchdowns the next year that he plays, he throws something like 28. It's because it's very difficult to repeat these crazy performances. And that's what we're going to see from Cam this year. I like Cam Cam look, Cam can still finish as the QB one in fantasy. He can still have a great year, but there's not a chance even with Calvin Benjamin in the lineup. There is just not a chance Matt mathematically that he does what he did last season no he he won't i think there's a way he can do it with more yards and potentially even more passing touchdowns even though he'll have less rushing touchdowns having kelvin benjamin's a big deal and he was 27 so there's this growth curve too it's not like he posted a career year at age 32 where it's much more prone to randomness. You can put the you can put him on a developmental curve too. You have had the number one quarterback overall repeat. Yeah. It's possible. It's just not likely, but I'm just not a guy that's out here betting against Cam Newton. I don't think that's a sound approach. I think you're much better off taking the low hanging fruit rookie quarterback and trolling an entire fan base <laughs> by shredding him with a february article completely out of the blue just to get clicks i think that's the way to go (laughs) it was not even not look there is a very the reason this this whole thing exists matt the reason this whole thing exists is because like three years ago i did a quick study on how quarterbacks perform their rookie season and how that translates to the rest of their career if you think about the good quarterbacks in the league, every good quarterback in the league, how many of them had bad rookie years? And, and I'm talking about the, the just uh, the, the true franchise quarterbacks. And the only guy that you can really think of is Drew Brees. And what he needed was a change in environment in order to even be what he is today. And so if you look at guys, even even when you dig down to like Matt Ryan, Matt Ryan was great his rookie season. If you look at Ben, Andrew Luck, I mean, there's there's just, it's crazy. What you're saying right now, is more of an indictment of Blake Bortles than anyone else. Yes, I don't disagree. I'm I'm not I'm not a Bortles guy. I mean, I'm from a real No, I know you're not. I, this was oh, Listen, you think that I'm playing gotcha when I have a grand plan to make this all about Blake Bortles. You just need to trust me, JJ. So, I mean, like with Bortles, I'm fine with him from a fantasy perspective because of the volume and what he can do. Um, uh, from that perspective and the negative game scripts they see and the fact that he just degaffs, right? I mean, the negative game script thing, really, uh, he, he's a rare case because usually positive game scripts are just better for quarterback play. Uh, but uh, from a real football standpoint, he's a perfect example of someone who were underrating what these interceptions do or were underrating what the sacks that he... I mean, he has really bad pocket awareness and, and we're, we're underrating those aspects of of their play because of what they're doing on in, in fantasy football and in, in in these raw stat sheets 
Have you ever seen a quarterback be called for an illegal forward pass two consecutive throws in the red zone? No. Well, I have. It happened last year. Yeah, week, it, was, like, it was. It was. I mean, I'm saying aside from him, no. All the worst possible quarterback events are always comma space with the exception of Blake Bortles. Hey, but hey, he's I, still I, very usable in fantasy. In fact, I I remember many matchups last year getting my face ripped off when someone else was starting Blake Bortles and I was starting Carson Palmer thinking I had an advantage and then all of a sudden there goes Blake Bortles again yeah in the fourth quarter hey always in the fourth quarter always thinking you had the matchup won when Blake Bortles is sitting on 120 yards and an interception after three quarters then he somehow finishes the game with three touchdowns and we jumped in a weird time machine after talking about Matt Moore And on that show with Christopher Harris, we discussed the possibility that Matt Moore is better than Ryan Tannehill, that that's actually possible. And we were right. Told you so. And as we shift into full told you so radio, before I launch into self-involved, obnoxious radio, I would like to take a moment and jump to the other side of the spectrum because I experienced an enormously humbling moment today. I was in the car on my way to the dentist. I was listening to Sirius Satellite Radio, Lithium Channel 34, Alternative Rock and Grunge, and a song came on. And certain songs are time machines, a portal into a place in time. Certain songs bring with them vivid memories, sights, sounds, smells, sensations. It's one of the great magical gifts that music offers the human soul. And a song came on the radio that transported me back to 1995. And I mentioned that it was a humbling experience because when I say the song, you are going to laugh because it's funny. This song should inspire memories in exactly nobody. Junior year of high school, I had a girlfriend and things were starting to happen in the bedroom. I was almost there. So close. And this was a big deal. I was a junior in high school. I was having sex with a pillow three times a day. I obsessed about this. This was very, very important. I felt so much passion. And at that moment, and right as we were reaching crescendo, she moved away. Gone. And I was devastated. Broken. It was about to happen. Oh, no. No. I was heartbroken. And I needed music to soothe me. What was the song I wanted to hear? Far Behind from Candlebox. I bring this up because this was the one time in my life where I was the buzzer. I have never called or emailed a podcaster or a radio station in an attempt to control the programming like you all love to do with me. At Roto Underworld on Twitter. Email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com. Your suggestions help produce the show, and I'm thankful for them, but I was never that guy that was calling radio stations as a kid, except this one time. I called up the rock station. It wasn't an alt-rock station then. That was just popular music in the 90s. There was no such thing as alt-rock. It was just rock. I remember that moment distinctly, feeling so desperate. I just had to hear the song Far Behind from Candlebox, that I called the radio station and requested it, and they played it, and it was magical. It did soothe me. And then the song came on in my car after I hadn't heard it in 20 years. Magical. 
but in a way, humbling and pathetic because think about it. What an oafish song choice. The girl is moving far away, leaving you far behind. So the song that you desperately want to hear are the exact lyrics, one for one, far behind. No symbolism, no imagination, just literally the definition of the song title was what I needed. I mean, at that moment, I should have known that I was destined to lack any artistic skill. I would never possess artistic skills. At that moment, it was decided. You need the song with the literal words far behind in them to feel soothed. You're not gravitating toward the song with the abstract idea of a love lost. No, no. The title of the song needed to be exactly, You Left Me Far Behind. Now that I have been laid bare, fully embarrassed, let's go all the way and play the song. Now maybe Did I mean to treat you better And someday we can take our time To brush the leaves aside So you can reach us Just brutal. What wasn't brutal was watching David Johnson work in 2016. We talked about David Johnson on the Roto Underworld show more than any other player last season. David Johnson's not just hashtag good at football. He's historically good. He looks like one of the greats of all time, and it's time to start putting his 2016 season in context. So you read this from Rich Rebar, at Lord Reeves on Twitter. Players with 1,000 rushing yards and 700 receiving yards through 12 games in a season. Here's the list. David Johnson, 2016. Marshall Falk, 1998. End of list. Justin Woodruff, at WoodJustRuff on Twitter. David Johnson needs to average a mere 74 receiving yards per game, which is very doable for him, to become the third running back in NFL history to have 1,000 rushing yards and 1,000 receiving yards in a season. Didn't have to specify running back there, just the third player in NFL history to accomplish that because no wide receiver has ever rushed for 1,000 yards. Wow. You see what we're doing here? We made Julio Jones interesting in the last episode, and now I'm making David Johnson interesting for the moment. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. The let's put David Johnson in historical context tweets have just begun. A week from now, you'll be sick of reading about how David Johnson's the best running back since Marshall Falk or Ladanian Tomlinson. These topics have a one-week shelf life, and then it's get out of my face with these stale stats. Yeah, 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 David Johnson's one of the best of all time. Yeah, 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 yada, 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 get out of my face. I'm so over David Johnson. Ugh. No surprise, David Johnson has the highest value over stream in the playerprofiler.com database. David Johnson's value over stream, the number of fantasy points per game that he is scoring on average above 
the most likely replacement on the waiver wire, not on the bench, on the waiver wire. That's the difference between value over stream and value over replacement. David Johnson's value over stream on playerprofiler.com is plus 18.40. What? Yes. 18.4. That was fun. Let me try that again. Plus 18.4. And that's the best value over stream I've ever seen for any player since we launched Player Profiler. But a couple of players aren't far behind. Le'Veon Bell plus 15.8. Ezekiel Elliott plus 13.6. In fact, the top six players overall across all positions in our value over stream metric, they're all running backs. Johnson, Bell, Elliott, Gordon, DeMarco Murray, LaShawn McCoy. All running back. Uh-oh. It's time to shoot off the warning flare. Friends of Zero RB Theory will be called upon. Brothers in arms, we must unite to defend Zero RB this offseason. Because the signs we're seeing, like the top six players in value over stream, indicates that war is coming. Battle lines are being drawn, and shots have already been fired on Twitter. Now, we had a mean buzzard right in earlier, mocking my Julio Jones take, which was understandable. But we also have the nice buzzards. We have the mean buzzards. We have the nice buzzards. The nice buzzards drop these tweets on my doorstep and say, hey. Hey, Podfather. Might want to look at this tweet. So I pick it up and I read it. It's from Drew Loftus, a fantasy writer for the New York Post. I didn't know the New York Post had fantasy writers, so this caught me by surprise. The tweet reads, anybody defending Zero RB is someone who doesn't know enough to argue. Ooh, see, this is it. See, it's happening. Shots fired from Drew Loftus. Now, I don't know who Drew Loftus is. Through this tweet, I was introduced to a person named Drew Loftus who I did not know existed. My only exposure to the New York Post's fantasy coverage is through the SiriusXM show Roto Experts in the Morning. They have a regular segment where they break down the Friday start-sit column in the New York Post, and they relentlessly mock the analysis. So that's my only exposure to the New York Post's fantasy coverage up to this point. But now we know there's a person out there named Drew Loftus who doesn't know what the f*** he's talking about. But we can all agree, Zero RB has had a bad year. 2013, 2014, 2015, many of the teams that won high-stakes championships leveraged Zero RB. Not so this year. So the question is, did we have a string of three straight outlier seasons, or are we currently in an outlier season 2016? And even if 2016 is an outlier season, that doesn't mean you can't win with Zero RB. I'm in the Friends of Roto World League, and I have the best record. And a first round bye. And the first running back I selected was Duke Johnson. My current running back core is Thomas Rawls, Tevin Coleman, Duke Johnson, Devontae Booker, and Kenneth Dixon. That's my running back core, and I'm 9-4. This is the Friends of Roto World League. With Rich Raybar, and JJ Zacharyson, and CD Carter, and Evan Silva, and Davis Maddock, and Matt Harmon, and Pat Doherty, and Nick Menzio, and Raymond Sutherland, and Mike Clay. So it's very possible to have success with 0RB this year. I didn't even draft the right running backs. I didn't draft Melvin Gordon. I didn't draft Jordan Howard. I didn't draft Spencer Ware. I didn't draft LeGarrette Blunt. I didn't draft Theo Riddick in that league. Frankly, I don't know what the hell I was thinking. In every league except that one, I got either LeGarrette Blunt or Theo Riddick. I'm not sure what the hell happened. Thank God someone dropped Thomas Rawls. 
but there will be plenty of zero RB rosters that win championships this year featuring Melvin Gordon and Jordan Howard. But because David Johnson and DeMarco Murray and Ezekiel Elliott and Le'Veon Bell are crushing all other players in value over stream, those will be the featured players on most championship rosters this year. And yet only two of those running backs were drafted in the first round, David Johnson and Ezekiel Elliott. Le'Veon Bell was drafted in the second and third round after his suspension. DeMarco Murray was a fourth round pick. Plenty of running backs were landmines in the early rounds this year. It's just that the running backs that hit, hit in such spectacular fashion that they blotted out the sun with fantasy points. And a lot of the zero RB running backs we were counting on, like Amir Abdullah and Charles Sims, got hurt. And a lot of the wide receivers at zero RB rosters were relying on, A.J. Green, Keenan Allen, Allen Robinson, Brandon Marshall, have underperformed their ADP because they either got hurt or their quarterback play collapsed. So now we come back to the question, was this an anomaly year for both the running back and the wide receiver position? Or is this the new norm? The answer is a little bit of both. We were talking about the running back renaissance that players like Melvin Gordon and David Johnson were ushering in starting in 2015. That 2015 running back class was special. And then in this last running back class, we had Ezekiel Elliott, one of the special talents in the league at this moment. And that class also had Jordan Howard and Derrick Henry is coming. So there is an influx of talent at the running back position in the LaShawn McCoys and the DeMarco Murrays are in the waning years of their careers, still RB1s in fantasy, however. So it's a confluence of factors. We are in the midst of a running back renaissance. We have the maximum number of running backs that can produce RB1 numbers at this particular moment in time. And we suffered through an inordinate number of early round wide receiver busts in 2016. And one thing's not going to change as we head into 2017. The running back position is only going to become more talented. These young star running backs will be more seasoned as the years progress and will be experiencing another influx of talent from the college ranks. Leonard Fournette, Dalvin Cook, Samaje Pirine. It's a hard name to say and Christian McCaffrey, and less talked about backs that could be even more talented than those players, like Royce Freeman. So the running back position is only going to become more dynamic over the next couple years. But the fundamentals of zero RB aren't changing. And this historical year for running backs in fantasy football will completely change 2017's draft dynamic. Allen Robinson should not have been drafted in the first round. Brandon Marshall should not have been drafted in the second round, but we were forced to because zero RB became the en vogue draft concept for 2016. This overall running back renaissance and the historical year that Ezekiel Elliott and David Johnson are having, on the one hand, it's annoying because those with microphones like me are going to have to go to a war in the offseason. It'll be a great content creation device, but it's also going to be frustrating for me. But that frustration is going to be offset by the fact that my fantasy drafts will be much easier to execute in 2017. Because those that were implementing zero RB because they thought it was the cool new thing will quickly shift away back to robust running back. And the true believers that understand the fundamental tenets of the strategy will continue to implement zero RB and will be rewarded with a war chest of elite wide receiver talent in rounds one through four or five.
that's exciting. And we may look back on 2016 a year from now and think, oh, wow, 2016 was a total anomaly. Most of the running backs that were drafted in the early rounds in 2017 were either busts or got hurt. And those with the conviction to continue to leverage zero RB to build their fantasy teams in 2017 will roll on to championships. That's the idea. We also talked a lot about Melvin Gordon and Tevin Coleman and Jay Ajayi. You have Melvin Gordon, one of the most prolific running backs in NCAA history, and he's scoring touchdowns at a clip that I haven't seen in a long time. And what matters in fantasy football more than anything, like you said with Alan Hearns, is touchdowns. So Melvin Gordon is a guy that you have to get in your lineup every week. He's a locked-in RB1. He's going to be a locked-in RB1 even this week against the Denver Broncos, but I keep hearing that Melvin Gordon isn't good at football. For some reason, I'm supposed to think that matters. So do you think Melvin Gordon's good at football? And does that even matter? Well, anybody in the NFL is good at football. But I think what you're getting at, is he good for the NFL? Is he a good player in the NFL? I think that's probably your question. Yeah. Is Melvin Gordon in the upper 25th percentile of NFL running backs? Uh, He's probably near there either slightly above it or slightly below it uh it's hard to get excited about the offensive line in san diego um they they really haven't uh, opened up holes uh even last two or three years on a consistent basis he's running hard uh it doesn't but for our purposes in fantasy it does not matter uh 22.6 touches per game for for gordon uh it's all about workload uh dependable workload and once danny woodhead went down uh, rest in peace, Danny. Sorry about that, John. Yeah, uh, Gordon became uh, the bell cow there. He's he's doing everything, and uh, you know he he's that's going to continue. He's going to continue to be ranked in the top ten uh, pretty much every week because you can't. There's not too many guys that have that sort of uh, consistent workload week to week. Yeah, you can't bench him against the Denver Broncos. We saw what happened when Jeremy Hill faced the Broncos. Long runs, a big explosive week. He's going to get all the carries, 33 red zone carries. So the Chargers will be in the red zone at times, even though it is the vaunted Broncos defense. The Chargers are also a great offense, and they will be in the red zone, and they will be handing the ball to Melvin Gordon, and odds are he'll score a touchdown. That's just what Melvin Gordon does. 76% opportunity share. That's number five in the league. He is a bell cow back, and he's catching enough passes that I consider him more than just an early down pounder. 20 receptions, three receptions per game, that's 14th in the league, and a 74% catch rate. He's got good hands. I don't think he's running great routes out of the backfield like Theo Riddick, but I think he's adequate enough that we can call him an all-purpose bell cow, and that automatically vaults him into the upper 20th percentile of NFL running backs. And then when you look at his college resume, very few running backs have a better college resume. I feel like fantasy gamers are still holding the Wisconsin offensive line against Melvin Gordon, even though he's doing what he's doing this year with, like you said, a below average offensive line, 95.5 offensive line for run blocking efficiency on playerprofiler.com for the Chargers offensive line. That's 20th in the league. He's an impressive player. 
I think of Melvin Gordon as a rich man's Jay Ajayi. But what happens, Evan, when Devontae Freeman goes out with a concussion, he misses week five, and Tevin Coleman rolls up 160 yards and two touchdowns? What happens then? Then it's on. Then it's on. This is why you draft Tevin Coleman in the 10th round. I mean, this is why zero RB is such a perfectly constructed strategy. All right. Jay Ajayi runs incredibly hard. Are you impressed by Jay Ajayi? How could you not be, right? I have to uh, project him for 200 yards this week, I think. I mean. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> He's not even playing. <laughs> Jay Ajayi's so good, he rolls up 200 yards on his bye week. It's one of the biggest stories in terms of fantasy running backs, right? Because coming, yeah. coming into the year... It looked like he was going to be the man. And then they sort of were kind of, you know, looking at other players, maybe going to draft one, da-da-da-da-da, you know, flirting with Foster. Then they bring him in. And then all the beat writers are like, Foster looks like hands down the best running back at camp. Um, remember that? Remember yeah. that, yeah. And um, then early on, he won the job. And uh, then he got hurt, which was shocking that he got injured, Varian Foster. Uh now I think it's it's not just Ajayi, uh, his or Ajayi. I don't know how you pronounce it. I, I go Ajayi, but Ajayi. Well, he's actually British, so you'd pronounce it J Ajayi. Ajayi. All right, whatever. Ajayi. So the offensive line has really gotten healthy. Mike Pouncey's back at center. Um, he had another injury. Albert there was injured for a little while. Now everybody's healthy. It's their, it's their core offensive line. They're starting to open holes for him. They ran really well on the Steelers, which was looking like a, a, a bad rushing matchup. I think the Steelers had been giving up 77 yards or something like that uh, on the ground uh, prior to that game. Rang him up for over 200. Um, so, yeah, looking looking forward with, Foster, uh, with uh, Arian Foster completely out of the way. He's looking real good. We need to change our assumptions of Jay Ajay, John Paulson. Wow, that's quite the quite the British accent. That's like oh, I'm trying to place it. That offensive line's doing quite well. It's almost like out of like Oliver, like that sort of accent. <laughs> Very multi-talented. Wait, wait, wait! Jay Ajay comes off the field. Please, sir, can I have some more carries? <laughs> More red zone work, please. I think he's got plenty of red zone work right now. He's getting a ton of red zone work. Jay Ajayi was the only running back other than O.J. Simpson, Earl Campbell, and Ricky Williams to eclipse 200 yards in back-to-back games, and his previous career high was 48 yards. Why? Because offensive line matters. Because while Melvin Gordon is actually good at football even if he wasn't as long as he's getting red zone carries and he's running behind an efficient offensive line like Jay Ajayi is Jay Ajayi then the running back is going to be productive they are very much a cog in a wheel it's a symbiotic relationship the running back and the offensive line and you can argue the offensive line is even more important than the running backs running ability 
look at Jay Ajayi. The coaches did not think that he was in any way special. In training camp, their ideal talent configuration in Miami was Arian Foster on early downs and Kenyon Drake in passing situations and Jay Ajayi getting zero touches. That's what the beat reporters were reporting, and now everything has changed. No more Arian Foster. No more Kenyon Drake. It's just Jay Ajayi and a little bit of Damian Williams. And when Damian Williams gets the ball, what does he do, John? He scores touchdowns. He scores a 12-yard <laughs> touchdown. He scores from the 12. Damian Williams just scored a touchdown from the 12. My face just melted when I saw that. What does all of this tell you? It tells you something is clicking in the right place with that offensive line. I feel like that offensive line is like the bad guys, the cat burglars that pick the locks, and they do the zoom in, and they show you how the lock pieces are fitting together. And just at that moment when all the pieces inside the lock align, and boom, the safe opens. Well, that's what's happened. The safe has opened in Miami in the form of their offensive line. Why? Because four of the five offensive linemen are first-round picks. And not merely first-round picks, top 20 overall picks. Brandon Albert, round one, pick 15. Laramie Tunsil, round one, pick 13. Jawan James, round one, pick 19. Mike Pouncey, round one, pick 15. Mike Pouncey is the highest-drafted center in NFL draft history. That's why Jay Ajayi is doing so well. It's not that he's this Earl Campbell, O.J. Simpson, Ricky Williams level talent. No, it's that their offensive line is one of the best in football, maybe the best in football behind only the Dallas Cowboys and the Tennessee Titans. How do I know this? Because the offensive line run blocking efficiency grade on playerprofiler.com for the Miami Dolphins has been a rocket ship over the last couple weeks. That unit was in the bottom 10 in run-blocking efficiency in just a couple weeks. Boom! 107.4, 12th in the league. And as long as they stay healthy, they're going to be top five very soon. So we need to change all our projection models soon. We have to be nimble and recalibrate our Miami Dolphins rushing projections based on this offensive line. And it's not just that the offensive line has draft capital and elite pedigrees. They're all huge. Brandon Albert, Laramie Tunsil, Jawan James, and Jerome Bushrod are all tackles, John. They're over 320 pounds. The Dolphins have decided to only play run blockers on their offensive line. They're mauling people with four tackles and Mike Pouncey. When you play four jumbo tackles and Mike Pouncey, you're going to run people over and your running back, whether he's Jay Ajayi or Damian Williams, is going to roll up 200 plus yards. This is a completely new reality from what we've been used to, the Miami Dolphins having a bad offensive line. And we can't forget about James White's special skill. James White specializes in one specific thing on the football field. He is the best at this particular thing on the football field. Do you know what it is, Evan? Catching the ball and falling? 
dropping wheel routes. <laughs> and who can forget about the time I predicted Justin Forsett would be caught? Technically, the number one running back on the depth chart is Justin Forsett. Do you think Justin Forsett will lead the Baltimore Ravens in touches this year? Well, I mean, you can just play the odds, and he's one of four potential guys, so the odds are against it. I mean, he has the first crack, so I'll give you that. I mean, I would hate Forsett if his ADP was higher than it is now. Um, so it is pretty low. So if you really wanted to to pick up a guy and you decided you wanted to say, hey, I'm going to get Forsett, and maybe he gets hot and is able to continue at running back, let's say, 38 right now once everyone else is off the board all other starting running backs are gone i mean there's only 32 teams right he's he's running back 38 so i mean maybe you could take a shot at him i know you're probably all about buck allen and i I like i love buck allen if it was going to be him that's going to be in there the problem is you got uh, a couple other guys who can maybe catch some passes so this seems like a stay away sort of backfield for me but once someone is able to take the reins, I think it it can be valuable, of course. You know which backfield I heard was a stay away last year? Um, no. The Atlanta Falcons. Well, you had two guys that were being drafted much higher than what these guys. First of all, it's two guys, not four. I'm talking about four guys now. Four, four. Tevin Coleman was like a fifth-round pick, or, and then and the other guy was a sixth-round pick. It wasn't you that was saying this, Kevin. It was just people. It's just, I don't even know if anyone was saying it. I just made it up. Why are you getting defensive? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was going to say. I'm just, well, don't, you're trying to say that what I'm saying this year is like what people were saying about the number one, at least the RB1's backfield last year, so... What I'm saying is, when you are implementing zero RB, you're trying to find value in the later rounds, and one of the sources of value is depth chart ambiguity, like we saw in Atlanta last year, and if you can decode the backfield, it can help you win a league. And I believe I've decoded the Baltimore Ravens backfield. I think Justin Forsett is a cut candidate. And I know his ADP is only 104.1, but I think that's too high. I don't think he should be drafted. You think Forsett is really going to get cut? I don't see any reason for them to retain him for $2 million this year. He has no guaranteed money. All the guaranteed money was locked up in his signing bonus and his year one salary. His year two salary is not guaranteed. They can save $2 million by cutting him. And I wouldn't think that they would cut him. There was no reason for me to consider the possibility that the Baltimore Ravens would cut Justin Forsett. I mean, I would cut Justin Forsett if I was the GM because Justin Forsett is a small, slow scat back who's not a good receiver. So intrinsically, Justin Forsett, to me, has no value. I wouldn't have signed him. And once I signed him, I would have cut him because I'm a rational actor Unless we're talking about a handful of players that I irrationally like. But I believe that something has happened in Baltimore which may lead to the team cutting Justin Forsett. We already saw this in Tennessee, where Tennessee traded Doyle Green-Beckham. Why? Because they had two serendipitous prospects show well in camp to a place that they believe they could trust them. Tajay Sharp and Trey McBride. With the emergence of Tajay Sharp and Trey McBride... It gave 
the Tennessee front office the latitude to trade away Doro Green Beckham, a player clearly no one on the coaching staff wanted. Well, the emergence of Terrence West has made Justin Forsett expendable. If you bring no unique value to the table and a cheaper, younger option has emerged on the depth chart, there's no reason to keep you around. But we can never forget that I was wrong about Dwayne Washington ever being a thing. Through my fury and rage, I did make some notes in the last 24 hours so I could talk about players today. But the first player on the list reminds me that this audience is really bad at listening because I'm reading on Twitter that I think that Dwayne Washington is a bad player. You said on your podcast he's a bad player. No, I didn't! I didn't say that! What is wrong with you people? I didn't say anything like that. I provided a nuanced position on Dwayne Washington, explaining why he's not a more valuable player for the rest of the season than Theo Riddick. That you shouldn't be playing Dwayne Washington over Theo Riddick in week three. That was what I said. And yet somehow the monkeys in this audience distilled it down to, you said Dwayne Washington was a bad player. I just, God, just can't. The Dwayne Washington theoretic dynamic is very similar to the Danny Woodhead Melvin Gordon dynamic that we had in San Diego, at least for the first game. Theo Riddick will receive more opportunities than Dwayne Washington. His touches are going to go up. That means his carries are going to go up, just like Danny Woodhead. Danny Woodhead received a 60% snap share to Melvin Gordon's 40% snap share before Danny Woodhead went out for the season. Rest in peace, Danny. That's what I believe we'll see in Detroit. Theo Riddick will be a high-volume satellite back. Dwayne Washington will be the the between-the-tackles pounder. Now, if something happens to Theo Riddick and Theo Riddick goes down, then Dwayne Washington becomes incredibly interesting because Dwayne Washington is an efficient receiver. If Theo Riddick goes down, Dwayne Washington could conceivably become an RB1 in fantasy. That's in his range of outcomes. It's just another reason you need to be stashing Dwayne Washington. He has, because he has the size and upper percentile athleticism across the board, look at his workout metrics on playerprofiler.com, and he's a slick receiver, he checks a lot of boxes. Very few running backs have as much upside as Dwayne Washington. And one thing struck me looking back at the shows from 2016, I had no idea how much beef I generated. I thought I had one nemesis. Michael Fabiano. Turns out I have two because you have to add Mike Clay as well as everyone that covers the Packers and Kean Fahey. We'll roll the clips. Thought, sure, let's revisit this Matt Asiata, Jarek McKinnon debate. Because in what world is Matt Asiata blowing Jarek McKinnon out of the water? They both have two usable weeks. And who's the one fantasy analyst that more often than not cites usable weeks when touting a player. It's Mike Clay. Ah, the creative fantasy point math. The fantasy analyst who's entrenched in a previous projection. So many statistical tricks that they can employ. Can use total fantasy points rather than fantasy points per game if the player you touted hasn't missed games while the player you're comparing him to has missed games. (laughs) 
No problem. Let's just use total fantasy points rather than fantasy points per game. I don't do that. I never use total fantasy points because that couldn't be more useless. I only talk in terms of fantasy points per game on this show. You can always find a stat that aligns with your position. Usable weeks, total fantasy points, and then, of course, standard scoring versus PPR scoring. Oh, when I was comparing Matt Aziata and Jarek McKinnon, I was talking about standard scoring and total fantasy points. Okay, why? Okay. Very few people play in standard leagues anymore, and total fantasy points is useless, but okay. Whatever stat you need to help you sleep at night, use that stat. Michael Fabiano sometimes comes on that show. We are very much zero RB on this show. We recommend wide receiver heavy drafts. Michael Fabiano is the antithesis. Opposite. He wants robust RB. He likes the early round running backs. So he really has become a show nemesis. So I would love to pass on a message to Michael Fabiano (laughs) from Matt Kelly, the pod father. How's Todd Gurley doing, Mr. First Round Running Back? Todd Gurley. (laughs) We posted a poll earlier. Who's the biggest bust of the year? Oh, man. It was a tie. It was down the middle. It was 50-50. DeAndre Hopkins on one side, Todd Gurley on the other. Mm. Oof. I know. Isn't that funny? You got to appreciate his loyalty, though. I mean, he really he's standing pat on his uh, on his theories. And uh, it hasn't worked out for him so far this year. In fact, in the NFL Expert Fantasy League, he's I want to say second worst or has the worst record. And there's nothing more enjoyable because I love Fab. But there's nothing more enjoyable than rubbing it in just a little bit. Oh, that feels so good. (laughs) that, That knowledge. That knowledge, it just, it tickled my brain. Oh, that felt so good to hear that. The nemesis, Michael Fabiano. The anti-zero RB fantasy football analyst, Michael Fabiano, is at or near last place. Woof, that's a feel-good moment right there for us on this show. You're welcome. Yeah, it's pretty enjoyable, especially when he's in desperate mode trying to trade everybody and everything so that he has a chance. But he has no chance, Matt. He's done. He's out. There's no chance for him. Oh, that was an awful show. Worst show of the year. A handful of high-profile football personalities have blocked me. Thankfully, Johnny Rumford recently unblocked me. I don't know why, but he did. So I'm thankful for that. I don't want to be blocked. It's not my goal. Kean Fahey blocked me because someone else added a hashtag alien time capsule to one of his many ridiculous tweets. And then he found out that I was the originator of hashtag alien time capsule. So he sought me out and blocked me. What kind of psychopathic social media user are you to seek someone out because they are the originator of a hashtag that you didn't like and block them? No one in the fantasy football community has blocked more users than Keon Fahey. So my question is, what does that say about you? If you have more blocks than followers, maybe it's time to look in the mirror. Maybe it's time to go back to your analysis of Sam Bradford and Ryan Tannehill and rethink it. 
Because it's one thing for me to be intractable in my belief that Tony Romo is an elite quarterback and he gives the Cowboys a better chance to win than rookie fifth rounder Dak Prescott. It's another thing for Keon Fahey to continue to fly the flag for Sam Bradford and Ryan Tannehill. Like, duh, duh, duh. Mike McCarthy is our, like, duh, quote of the week. Mike McCarthy on Ty Montgomery. Ty Montgomery is a running back. (laughs) You think, Mike? (laughs) I apologize for not making that announcement. He hasn't been in the wide receiver meetings for months. Thanks for that, Mike. But the thing is, we didn't need that announcement from you because we watch the games and we have the data. Well, I don't watch the games, but I at least have the data. We know that... Ty Montgomery has been operating as a running back for the Green Bay Packers for months. We applauded the quick work by ESPN Fantasy Football adding the running back position to Ty Montgomery's eligible positions because it was self-evident that Ty Montgomery had been converted to running back early in the season. This announcement is unnecessary. The fact that anyone is asking you whether or not Ty Montgomery is a running back or a wide receiver in December tells you everything you need to know about the people covering the Green Bay Packers for a living. But that's not even the winning quote. Oh no, the like da winner comes from Bill O'Brien, who is basically Mike McCarthy South in terms of head coaching incompetence. Bill O'Brien illuminating us with a reminder that he is not an author nor a writer. Let's play the sound. You guys write the narratives. I'm not a narrator. You guys write the narratives. I'm not an author. You guys write the narratives. I'm not a journalist. You are the narrative man, you guys and women. So you guys write the narrative however you want. Uh, 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 That was my favorite sound of the year. Let's play that again. You guys write the narratives. I'm not a narrator. You guys write the narratives. I'm not an author. You guys write the narratives. I'm not a journalist. You are the narrative man, you guys and women. You are the narrative man, you guys and women. Oof. And who could forget the great Brian Hartline? Terrell Pryor has become this polarizing player. And for me, when I look at Terrell Pryor, I simply see an exciting Dynasty League prospect. A wide receiver that that has the talent profile to be a perennial WR1 in fantasy. And at 27 years old, he's still holding on to a couple prime years. He runs a 4-4-1 at 6-4-233. That's a 12833 99th percentile height-adjusted speed score. And I understand Tommy Streeter has a great speed score. And there are a bunch of big, tall wide receivers with great speed scores who can't play. But Terrell Pryor proved this year that he can play. And we have a metric that factors out quarterback play, target premium, looking at how did Terrell Pryor perform on a per-target basis compared to the other receivers in the Browns passing game, plus 5.3 target premium for Terrell Pryor. was top 40 in the NFL. 
and he only posted a 1.6% drop rate. 1.6% drop rate. Two drops all year, and yet new to the position. He was brand new to the position, and yet was a stalwart wide receiver, posting a snap share over 90% on the season. So he played over 90% of the snaps, only two drops. And this was his first year playing the position. That's exceptional. That's someone who I will allow my imagination to run wild on. And yet, that's not what Brian Hartline's doing. Brian Hartline instead is somehow ravaged with jealousy that Terrell Pryor is going to parlay a relatively productive season into a big contract. Why does Brian Hartline begrudge Terrell Pryor having career success? Brian Hartline said, quote, if I'm building a team, what is Terrell Pryor? Is he my number one? God, I hope not. Because let's put it this way. For me, I want a guy day in and day out that I know what I'm getting from. You don't know what you're going to get from Terrell Pryor. You don't know who's going to show up. You don't know if he's going to get in trouble. You don't know if he's going to smart off. Smart off? Who the fuck says smart off in 2016? White people do. White people say that. (laughs) Yeah, in 1955, Heartline goes on. I need stability. That's so much more important to me. I need a guy that runs routes. I need stability. He's repeating himself. I need constant production, like you got from Brian Hartline at the NFL level. Yeah. I need constant production. He's a number two? Maybe. Okay. He kind of disappeared the last couple weeks, as if all receivers haven't underperformed for two consecutive weeks. Okay. Hartline continues. So I'm very apprehensive as a Cleveland Browns guy to give out a contract. Well, you don't give out the contracts. You don't work for the Cleveland Browns, Brian. Hartline goes on. Listen, you had one year. You're a flash in the pan. You're trying to tell me with a guy that had suspect personality characteristics, I'm going to go ahead and hand you a bunch of money. You don't work for the Browns, Brian. Stop saying you're going to give him money. You don't work for the Browns. Why are you putting yourself in the position where you're paying him? He goes on. Brian Hartline will not shut up. I'm going to go ahead and hand you a bunch of money and you're going to work harder? Uh, mm, I think I'm going to bet against that if I'm a betting man. Fuck you, Brian Hartline. Not even a pillar of broadcasting integrity, Vern Lundquist, was safe. The old boys club that is sports broadcasting has an even more insidious component, however. Because when you look at Vern Lundquist, he looks like that super mischievous resident in the nursing home. (laughs) And the nurses are tired of his antics, always flashing the nurse's station and running away laughing. For me, looking at Vern Lundquist, it reminds me that women in broadcasting are not allowed to go out on their own terms, Christopher. Right. Yeah. They are instead reminded that this is a visual medium in quotes. And it's one of the great sanctuaries for sexism in America. That's the sports broadcast booth. You agree? Sure, of course. Dude, I worked at ESPN for eight years. I mean, how many on-air people do I know personally who, you know, the, there's not a lot of unattractive women, on-air women walking around the halls at ESPN. And there are a lot of unattractive men <laughs> who are on-air walking around the, the halls. Um, sure, of course. And And then, you know, what makes it worse is when the sideline reporter marries a player or starts dating a player or the 
it's all sort of of a piece that, that you know, nobody's going to treat them like journalists. And, and a lot of the times they don't treat themselves like journalists. And that's not that's not at all always true. I have plenty of female friends who are on air talent who would never do that, who recognize it as an insane breach of the overall effort towards their career and somebody else's career. And yet there's so many of them that have done it and do do it and get caught and it's a scandal and blah, blah, blah. Like everybody, all sides don't treat it like it's real and it's really sad. And honestly, like, can I, can I just sort of wave my magic wand about sports coverage and just get rid of the sideline reporter altogether? It's completely useless. Once again, I don't give a crap what they said. I don't care what the coach told you walking off the field. He didn't reveal his soul or the game plan to you. So can we, he didn't tell you who's hurt really? Cause he doesn't want anybody to know that. Can we stop? Unless it's going to be Mean Gene Okerman. If we're going to have a personality like that on the sidelines and we're going to get real professional wrestling style interviews like we had with Aqib Talib last weekend, then I would be in favor of that. Short of that, I have no interest in any of that. Right. They're all politicians. And my point about sexism comes down to, well, that's the only route that's open. And if that wasn't the only route that was open, if actually actual analysis actual in booth but you know we're barking up the wrong tree because we're where i mean i came up i came from espn there's never a chance for me to get taken seriously as well, I, i'm not trained to be a host although i do it now but like i'm not trained to be an on-air tv host so that job's not open to me and i can't be an analyst because i didn't play right and no woman played and so in the end like that's that's the excuse and it's lame the whole construct is set up to marginalize women in broadcasting, and I don't blame them at all when they get caught in these kinds of situations and their credibility as journalists gets diminished because they're playing by a different set of rules that are stacked against them. So that whole... I blame them. The whole construct, I think, is the problem. And what we have to do is you and I will create our own media company and we'll solve <laughs> all of these problems together. Right. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> Speaking of politics, can't forget about what I said to Ernie Johnson. Sports is the global leader in empty words. And the words are the most empty when the sports commentators comment on politics. Recently, Ernie Johnson from TNT's Basketball Halftime Show treated us to a political monologue. Yes. And he received universal applause after that monologue. Oh, Ernie. Beautifully said. Someone had to say it, and you did, Ernie Johnson. Bravo. What the hell did Ernie Johnson say? I listened to the Ernie Johnson monologue, and all I heard were words. Words saying nothing. You can just string together words that doesn't mean they have to have meaning. And in the case of Ernie Johnson, he strung together a two-minute monologue that said nothing. He said, I didn't vote for anyone on the ballot, and I hope Donald Trump does a good job. We should give him a chance. And by the way, I'm a Christian. Thumbs up. Okay. And that's what you got for us, Ernie Johnson. Let's kick it over to social media. See what social media has to say. Oh, Ernie. Oh, yes. Preach. Preach, Ernie. Preach what? An old white guy saying give Donald Trump a chance? That's what you're applauding? An old white guy saying, give Donald Trump a chance, is some of the lamest sentiment in the history of politics. He said nothing, and he was celebrated. Yay! Ernie Johnson spoke words! 
fuck Ernie Johnson. I had similar sentiments for Senator Richard Blumenthal. I've been waiting for 2016 since I moved to Connecticut specifically so I could vote against Richard Blumenthal. Why? Because Richard Blumenthal did the most despicable thing of any politician in the United States Congress. He lied about going to Vietnam. He built an entire false persona around the idea that he was a veteran returning from Vietnam with a newfound desire for public service. Someone who appreciates the gravitas of war. Trust me to make the most important decisions, such as are we sending our 18-year-olds to die in foreign countries. Trust me to help make those decisions for you as your representative in the United States Senate. Except he didn't go to Vietnam. He lied. He lied about being in Vietnam and you're electing him because he's wearing a blue jersey? You want to know why that's the most despicable thing? Listen to a first-hand account of a soldier's experience in Vietnam, and very quickly, very quickly, you will understand why Richard Blumenthal has no business representing people anywhere. After you lie about being in Vietnam, you're not qualified to clerk the city council, much less be a United States senator. Just last week, I heard a first-hand account from someone in Vietnam in the transportation department of the army. He was a truck driver, and his job was to transport munitions and men to the front line. And it's very difficult to get a veteran to talk about their first-hand experience on the front lines. They very rarely do it. You'll hear so many stories told by grandchildren who said on multiple occasions they tried to get their grandfather to talk about what it was like in World War I or World War II, and they refused to talk about it. I had that experience. My grandfather saw action in Iwo Jima, in Guam. He went into all those viper nests. He was a medic in the Marines. Imagine what he saw at Iwo Jima and what he saw in Guam. I can only imagine because when I asked him about it, he changed the subject. He talked about it generally. He never got into specifics. So when you're blessed to hear the specifics of the front line, pay attention and listen. And what I heard from that man in the transportation department about his experience in Vietnam, the thing that gave him nightmares was not any specific offensive or event or explosion. It was the pervasive, haunted looks on the faces of the soldiers leaving the front. That he would have a truck filled with soldiers, all of them staring blankly into space, emotionally broken forever. Those men will never be the same after what they saw and what they experienced. And Richard Blumenthal lied about experiencing that to gain public trust. And then he was exposed and he was still voted into office. Why? Because he's on the blue team. And Connecticut's a blue state. And the details don't matter. And we can't forget about the feuds we had with our own audience. Because it would be one thing if, unprovoked, you decided one day to attack Mike Clay on Twitter. I get that every day on the internet. The worst people on the internet call me the worst 
possible names. I was called a Nazi N-word. I don't even know how that's possible, but that's what I was called recently on the internet service. So my psyche is hardened to these attacks. Most fantasy analysts are not. And what exacerbates it is that you pretend that you're not acting alone, even though you are acting alone. Alone in your stupidity. You apes bring my name into it. As if you think that's what I wanted. Did I do a good job, Fantasy Mansion? We got Mike Clay good, didn't we? <laughs> no! What are you doing? No, you didn't do a good job. What's wrong with you, ape? I feel like I'm doing a show at a zoo. And all of you are just chimps with machine guns. can't believe it, but I now have these generic internet trolls that embody the worst of humanity and that constantly demonstrate a hideous misuse of modern technology. Those people now follow the show and listen to me. And that makes me profoundly sad. But it gets worse. Oh, it gets, it gets worse. It gets worse. Because here's what these animals do. They twist my words and condense them into 140 characters to the point that they end up shouting words at Mike Clay that are unrecognizable from what I said. And then they attach my name to it. It's maddening because what I said was well thought out with nuance. And I explained my position over the course of 10 minutes. An interesting, engaging discussion with the audience. We received a lot of interesting feedback at Roto Underworld on Twitter, or email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com. A lot of people found the last show interesting. And most of you know that you can't condense a 10-minute soliloquy into 140 characters. Most people would never dream of doing that. But some of you do. And you end up inevitably mischaracterizing my sentiments and staining my integrity in the process and making yourself look like a buffoon so don't do it don't run out and mention the people that we talk about on this show on twitter stop it you're clearly not equipped to summarize my statements on my behalf i do not give you permission to do that so stop it fools i know part of this is my fault because i sit here emotionally naked saying the things that come to my mind without a filter and I sound aggressive doing it. And some of you heard the tone and you interpreted it as, oh, I must think that Mike Clay's a bad guy. I don't. He's not a blowhard. He's not a fraud. Why are you calling him that on Twitter and then tagging me as if I said those words? I didn't say those words. You all tweeting Mike Clay, you're the blowhards, not him. You're the frauds, not him. How do you all listen to the show and hear blowhard and fraud? I never said anything like that. Check the transcript. Those are not my words. How do you hear it that way? You have one job to be a listener and you do it poorly. Really, really, really poorly. Those of you that know how to listen, remember what I said, and you're not surprised by the fact that I stand by what I said, because the discussion that we had in the last show was imminently interesting to me and to many of you based on the feedback we're getting via Twitter and email. People tweeting me, NOT MIKE CLAY! 
because the topic was what are the underlying reasons for the deterioration of the sports opinions of certain analysts and in the case of Mike Clay we came to the conclusion that he's overexposed and <gasps> he's human he's human and now Mike Clay is tilting and you are part of the reason why he's tilting. And I feel bad that somehow I have activated the lowest common denominator in the sports community. He doesn't deserve that. And it makes me nauseous to see you attack him. Because I brought up his name out of curiosity, not out of resentment. Maybe a little resentment. Maybe. A little bit. Mostly curiosity. And in talking it through on air, I came to the conclusion that, that Mike Clay is human and that's endearing i like mike clay more than ever after talking his situation through on air but now you all have put me in this impossible situation because my only move now is to go to mike clay on bended knee and apologize and i'm not going to apologize because i'm not sorry go check the transcript there's nothing there to be sorry about it's unfortunate that you decided to attack Mike Clay because Mike Clay apparently doesn't know how to use social media for his own benefit. I didn't see this coming. I figured Mike Clay with 60,000 followers would simply ignore the feces that the worst members of this audience are throwing into his mentions. But oh no, no. Someone needs to tell Mike Clay the cardinal rule of hip hop. You beef up, you don't beef down. Why is an ESPN personality with over 60,000 followers responding to trolls with 20 followers? First day of Twitter school, you learn, don't do that. So you can imagine the shock and horror that I feel seeing members of this audience burn him in effigy and then attach my name to it. And then to see him respond? Horrifying. But also, again, endearing. He's not super social media savvy. That's endearing to me. He's not a marketing whiz. That's endearing to me. Mike Clay showing his naivete by believing the mischaracterization of my words by the trolls. It's endearing. Unfortunately, Mike Clay internalizes their words and then inevitably disparages me. And all I can do is exhale. Gosh, if you're going to criticize my Jeremy Lankford analysis because Jeremy Lankford is the only player you feel comfortable criticizing, you got to listen to the show and get your facts straight before you start talking out of your ass on social media, Mike Clay. I mean, come on. Mike Clay is like my grandfather with social media. He's just a doddering fool. So stop provoking him. He doesn't know any better. You think you're being clever. Jumping in his mentions and dropping my name, you're not. You're just being oafish, gossipy assholes. And it's beyond that. You're not merely gossipy assholes. You're narcs. I mean, we've had this talk before, but it predates our audience explosion. Before we became one of the top podcasts on the iTunes Sports and Rec rankings. We're no longer in the top 20. We're still in the top 50. Thank you, everyone that's rated the show. But before this popularity explosion, we had this talk about not running out to social media and snitching on me. Don't do that. The things we talk about on this show stay in-house. You only do damage to the show and to me and to yourself when you snitch 
on social media. How does it hurt the show? If I'm blackballed across the fantasy football community, I can't get guests. You want to have Evan Silva on the show? You want to have Matthew Friedman on the show? You want to have JJ Zacharyson on the show? You want to have Alex Gelhar on the show? Stop snitching! And there were tensions between myself and members of the Roto Underworld Game Analyst team. Well, there's that one league. There's a two-quarterback league where I own Russell Wilson, Tyrod Taylor, and Teddy Bridgewater. I lost that matchup. I did. I lost a matchup this week. I lost. Woo! Beaten by a member of the Roto Underworld Game Analyst team. Because of course! Because of course that's what happened. Beaten by Theo Riddick and Amir Abdullah because that's how it happens. That's how it's going to end one day for me. I am walking into this warehouse with six guns strapped to my back. It's abandoned. There's dust in the air. Sunset sunbeams are beaming into the windows, glittering on the dust. Empty warehouse, and all you can hear are my footsteps. Until I see the other fantasy analysts. Maybe they didn't implement zero RB. Maybe they were touting Demarius Thomas. Maybe they foolishly thought that Sammy Watkins was 100%. I don't care! And then I walk out! The only one still alive! And then I hear the click. The one guy standing outside the warehouse was a member of the Roto Underworld team all along. And that's how it's gonna end for me! One of my own is going to take me down and take over this microphone, but it's not going to happen now. No, 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 no. One day, one day, one of you will rise up. It will happen. I have already foreseen it. Not yet! All right, we need some levity. Bring in the dude, guys. And we've been talking about ability versus situation at the running back position for weeks now. I asked John Paulson about it last week, and he dodged the question. From C.J. Anderson to Kristen Michael to Carlos Hyde to Jay Ajayi. Jay Ajayi! Matt Asiata, Matt Jones, Jordan Howard, Lamar Miller. These are just dude guys. I understand Jordan Howard, 26 carries, 153 yards and a touchdown last night to go along with four receptions on four targets for 49 yards in the passing game. Impressive game for Jordan Howard. I get it. But still, Jordan Howard, just a dude guy. And this is another reason why efficiency matters and why playerprofiler.com exists. You go to playerprofiler.com and you realize, oh, wait, Jordan Howard's measurables are average or below across the board. He's only good at one thing, being big. Evidenced by a 106.8 27th percentile SparkX score, the Nike overarching athleticism metric on playerprofiler.com. He's best comparable to another dude guy, Carlos Hyde. We talked about this with Thomas Rawls over the summer. I compared Thomas Rawls to Jonas Gray, and so many Seahawks fans wanted to fly to Connecticut and drown me in the bathtub. You're not mad at me. You're mad at your dad. I know. Jordan Howard, like Thomas Rawls, has posted three games with more than 100 all-purpose yards in a six-game sample. And yet, in the middle of that stretch, he was benched for Kadeem Carey. Ask yourself, if Todd Gurley had a bad game against Jacksonville, 
Would he be benched for Benny Cunningham? No, because Todd Gurley's not a dude guy. Jordan Howard is. A running back can post 200 yards on any given game. Jonas Gray had 200 yards and four touchdowns. And the only reason he didn't repeat it the next week is because he overslept and was caught. He told Bill Belichick his alarm clock did not go off. He was Jay Ajayi before Jay Ajayi. He was on his way to back-to-back 200-yard performances, and then the snooze bar bit him. You would have thought that that was the one practice you would never want to miss. Coming off a breakout game, ready to build a career in the NFL, fooling both fantasy gamers and NFL general managers into thinking you're hashtag good at football when you're just a dude guy in the right place at the right time like so many running backs are. The serendipity is so strong with some dude guy running backs, they end up as first round fantasy draft picks. Look at Lamar Miller. Matthew Berry ranked Lamar Miller as his number one running back this offseason. Let me say that again. Matthew Berry recommended a skill position player tethered to Brock Osweiler as his number one fantasy running back. Matthew Barry of ESPN, ESPN, who decided to go running back heavy in their overall rankings this preseason and still whiffed because they ranked Lamar Miller and Adrian Peterson in their top five. Oops. How long is ESPN going to stay with those four letters, ESPN? If that fantasy platform whiffs on the running back position in 2017 like they did in 2016, we're going to have to change the name to ESPN. No! Debunked a lot of fallacies this year, starting with the rapport effect. But is there some sort of like um, connection there that data can't necessarily prove that maybe like locks us into thinking? Yeah, sure, Cameron Meredith in terms of like talent is a better player than Marcus Wilson. Um, but there's a reason the rapport effect, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a reason that, that Marcus Wilson came out last week and saw 11 targets and caught eight of them for 125, and Cam Meredith saw nine and only caught two. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't, I know that again, like, data can't really prove this, but I, I have to think that there's got to be some sort of connection between those two. When the last time we heard this was Jimmy Garoppolo to Malcolm Mitchell, right? I hear about the rapport factor every year. It's just one of those tired narratives that always comes up, and you rarely see it actually play out. Right. And if it does play out, you're not sure if that was the reason. So pinpointing the cause and effect is impossible in that situation. Right. Cameron Meredith was also on the second team offense. Yeah. Marcus Wilson was getting more first team reps last year than Cameron Meredith was. If anyone has rapport with the backup quarterback, it's actually Cameron Meredith. So that narrative doesn't make sense. Marcus Wilson's also been injured and rehabbing, so there was a swath of weeks where he wasn't on the practice field at all. I've never read a piece on Rotoviz or Fantasy Guru or Roto World that validates that narrative with data. Yeah. 
So I'm left to look at the profiles of the two players, and I don't mind Marcus Wilson's profile. Marcus Wilson was a guy we all liked based on his breakout age. He was a young producer at Washington State. The only problem was he's very svelte, 6'4", 184, an incredibly low BMI for a wide receiver. He's Tajay Sharp skinny, and there are very few wide receivers of his archetype that succeed in the NFL. Someone like Cameron Meredith is actually 6'3", 200, and we just haven't seen the super svelte wide receiver rise to become the every week leader in target share for his team. So I question whether or not Marcus Wilson can be the number one receiver for the Bears. And we've seen Cameron Meredith have two huge weeks this year. Marcus Wilson's had one huge week. I asked you the question because I don't have an answer. One guy has draft capital. I know it's seventh round, but Marcus Wilson was drafted. Cameron Meredith wasn't. They're similar ages. They have similar college production in terms of their college dominators are very similar. They both have great size-adjusted agility, well above average catch radiuses or catch radii. I guess they both have well above average catch radii. And they were both at one point on player profiler comparable to Rod Streeter. So it's very difficult for me to detangle these two players. And knowing that they're tethered to Matt Barkley, it makes it very difficult for me to get excited about either one. Oh, well, definitely. And I brought up just kind of like the backup narrative because I've seen it on Twitter and I've seen it on, you know, you know, uh, various articles this week. Multiple articles brought up. Yeah, yeah. Brought up the rapport factor between Marcus Wilson and Matt Barkley. Well, I think people were surprised that Barkley played. He didn't play well, let's face it, but he was competent. Like he has zero arm strength. But no, I, I just brought it up because I thought it was something fun to talk about. But um, I mean, the remaining schedule of the next three weeks, I mean, they get the Niners, Lions, and Packers. So, the, I mean, in theory... This is the week in DFS. Right. This is the week to own your Bears receivers. If you're going to own one, you got to pick one. Wilson or Meredith this week? I'll go with the guy that was on the field more last week and just go with Meredith. That, that's, that's right. That's right. I like that. Wilson's higher in the rankings, but I'm going to go Meredith. I'm going to go against the computer. Computer, fuck off. <laughs> We're loyal to Meredith, computer. We don't care. Recent efficiency, schmishency. We are Cameron Meredith loyalists on the show. Graham Barfield, Matt Kelly, Cameron Meredith. And can you believe at one point in time, Drew Brees was thought to favor the tight end just because he likes tight ends? <laughs> But the beauty of Drew Brees posting over 300 yards and three touchdowns at Kansas City was he didn't just beat the narrative that he's bad on the road. He also beat strong empirical data that shows that Drew Brees is measurably worse when he doesn't play in a dome environment. There's enough data going back many seasons showing Drew Brees is significantly better when playing at home. That's not merely a narrative. That position exists in the intersection of the anecdotal and the analytical analysis. That's as close to a true statement as we're going to find in football, where it's so hard to know the truth about players. We know, as a matter of fact, Drew Brees is a significantly better player at home. 
but he still drew Brees, and he's still capable of 300 yards in any given game. It doesn't matter where it is. It doesn't matter what the tendencies and the probabilities say. I bet on Drew Brees, the elite Hall of Fame quarterback with upgraded weapons in Week 7, and I cashed. But there was a purely narrative street argument that was also eviscerated in Week 7 by Drew Brees. And it has nothing to do with the home road splits. Drew Brees eviscerated the baseless narrative that he does not like to throw to wide receivers. (laughs) I can't even say it with a straight face. Drew Brees, one of the most accurate and prolific quarterbacks of all time, doesn't like throwing to wide receivers? Who said that originally? And how did so many people start regurgitating that ridiculous assertion? He prefers to throw the ball to tight ends and running backs. Remember that analysis? Yes. Just absurd. It just, it, it never made sense when you heard that analysis. It sounded laughable on its face. It should have been dismissed immediately, but instead of being dismissed immediately, based on the fact that it was illogical on its face, instead, the fantasy football echo chamber just kept saying it. And if enough analysts say the same thing enough times, eventually, it's perceived to be true by consensus. And yet, in week seven, Michael Thomas, 13 targets, Willie Sneed, 11 targets, Brandon Cooks, nine targets. The vast majority of the targets were all funneled to wide receivers. Why is that? Why? Why could that be? Maybe because Drew Brees has great receivers for the first time in his career. In previous years, he was throwing to a broken down Marcus Colston. He was throwing to Devery Henderson. He was throwing to Brandon Coleman. He was throwing to Robert Meacham. He was throwing to Lance Moore. Replacement level players and below wide receivers who were quickly flushed out of the league soon after leaving New Orleans. That's who Drew Brees was throwing the ball to until this year. This year, he has Brandon Cooks in his third year in the NFL. Peak Brandon Cooks. Willie Sneed in his third year. Peak Willie Sneed. And one of the most impressive rookie wide receivers in Michael Thomas. Drew Brees has been given a significant wide receiver upgrade, and it's no surprise he's now throwing to wide receivers a lot more than tight ends and running backs. Duh! (laughs) Drew Brees just throws to the open guy. He doesn't have a preference for the tight end. The Drew Brees likes to throw to the tight end narrative is one of the most ridiculous narratives I've heard in my career analyzing fantasy football. Because for that to be true, think about it. You have to put yourself in the shoes of Drew Brees. He snaps the ball. He drops back. He looks at the wide receiver, and then he looks over at the tight end, and he says, "Eh." the wide receiver's open downfield, but I just like tight ends better. I'm going to throw the ball to the tight end. That would never happen. I mean, maybe it would if you're Andrew Luck throwing to Kobe Fleener in your rookie year when you have rapport developed with Kobe Fleener because Kobe Fleener also went to Stanford and you've been Kobe Fleener's teammate for many years before entering the NFL. Maybe in that specific circumstance, you might be more inclined to throw the ball to Kobe Fleener than any other player in the read progression. Maybe, maybe in that one specific circumstance, you could build a logical argument that Kobe Fleener would receive preferential treatment from Andrew Luck. Maybe, but even that is a bit far-fetched. 
Now make it Hall of Famer Drew Brees at the peak of his powers. And you think that he's going to throw it to Kobe Flaner because he somehow, some way, prefers to throw to tight ends? That's why you're drafting Kobe Flaner? That's why you're starting Kobe Flaner? Based on that narrative? Because that's what I heard. He's going to throw the ball to Kobe Flaner instead of throwing it to Brandon Cooks, who on any given play can break a tackle and outrun the defense for a touchdown. Really? He's going to throw it to Kobe Flaner instead of Willie Sneed, one of the most sure-handed wide receivers in the NFL? Really? He's going to throw it to Kobe Flaner instead of throwing it to Michael Thomas, one of the most exciting young playmaking wide receivers we've seen in a while? Really? No! Absurd. I don't understand where these narratives come from, but let's hope, let's pray that Drew Brees targeting his wide receivers more than 30 times last week was enough to finally obliterate one of the most ridiculous narratives in the history of fantasy football. I love being right. What a great feeling it is to be right. Let's continue to focus on those times I was right, especially about the wide receiver position, because that's the position we need to win. Now, there's been some hatred beamed at Devontae Adams the last couple years by fantasy gamers in particular, but I'm looking at the advanced metrics, Rich. Devontae Adams? It's painful to admit, but he's been the most efficient wide receiver on Green Bay. You invented a metric called Target X in your days at XN Sports, and it's become Target Premium on playerprofiler.com, which is the percentage of fantasy points per target that a particular wide receiver accumulates above and beyond the other wide receivers in the passing game. Devontae Adams plus 26% target premium this year. That's number 15 in the league. He's slowly turning the efficiency corner. And I have to admit, I might start to buy Hey man, this this is why you got to be objective, man. No matter what, you can't like I say you can't take lock. We always talk about it all the time, especially on a third year guy. I thought last I thought it was very peculiar that everyone is handing out hall passes to the entire Green Bay offense this offseason for last year, but no one was giving Devontae Adams one at all. Like we literally made an excuse for every player in that offense because we're like, oh, we'll throw it back. They'll get Jordy Nelson back. Everyone be great, but no one was like, hey, no, no. We're just like, ah, no, Devontae Adams, he's pretty bad, whatever. I mean, not that he's a world beater, but I think we can safely assume. Uh, that he's not the guy you purchased in the middle of the first round of rookie drafts. Uh, but he's seen seven or more targets in three or four games this season. He scored a touchdown in three as well. I mean, if Rodgers, you know, miraculously kind of gets humming like we know he's capable of when the schedule lightens up, which is why everyone wants to buy Eddie Lacy in the first place. Maybe it helps the passing game, not Eddie Lacy. Um, you know, those wide receiver 30 to 40 weeks are going to turn into wide receiver 20 to 31s, you know, if, if that takes off. But, yeah, I mean, he's a guy that you probably waited too long because he scored in a primetime matchup last week. So, you know, he's a, a guy I picked up. I know in a lot of, like, home leagues I'm in, where he was available like people got picked him up like right away after that you know um you score you score on sunday night you know hey i saw you i mean it's the same way i saw jack quiz rogers get picked up in like every league on tuesday it's but yeah i think he's a guy that you you know you can hedge on and get uh production you get tied into a quarterback that everyone is still going to trot out there every week as a top five option you know in their heads and rankings Or if you have that number one waiver claim, put it on Terrell Pryor. Terrell Pryor. I wouldn't use it on Pryor. I would use it on Howard. 
I would use it on Howard, but it would be hard not to use it on Terrell Pryor because, my God, my God, Pat, Pat, what is this guy? He's amazing. Whether you're on a fab budget system, whether you're on a waiver claim system, you need to aggressively target Terrell Pryor based on talent. What do you think he does when uh, Gordon gets back? It's hard for me to envision a world in which Josh Gordon gets a bigger target share than Corey Coleman and Terrell Pryor. I don't see it. What are you talking about? Of course he is. He's Josh Gordon. I know he's Josh Gordon, and there was a time, long, 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 long time ago, in a galaxy far, far, far away, 2013 United States NFL football. You had Josh Gordon with a 1,600-yard season in one of the most fluky outlier seasons in the history of professional sports. And he hasn't been in the league since. Well, he was in the league for five games in 2014, and he was hugely inefficient in those games. Now comes back from a suspension, and waiting for him are two players in which he's not as athletic as... Corey Coleman and Terrell Pryor are better athletes than Josh Gordon, and he hasn't been practicing. He hasn't been playing. Those guys are both better athletes and better football players at this point in their respective careers than Josh Gordon. I don't think we can know that for sure. And Corey Coleman's not even playing. He has a broken hand. I think Corey Coleman will be back sooner rather than later. I think Corey Coleman can be effective just catching the ball, stashing it very quickly, and then getting yards after the catch. My strident, confident sports opinion is that Josh Gordon will be the number three receiver on the Cleveland Browns when their top three guys are healthy. That's my stride in sports opinion, which is not based on a lot because I have no fucking idea what Josh Gordon is anymore. How could you possibly in your mind's eye, Pat, imagine Josh Gordon being a better receiver at this point than Terrell Pryor? He looked like the best receiver I've ever seen. Yeah, so let's maybe throw out the one-game outlier from Terrell Pryor. I just really wanted to celebrate Terrell Pryor. He looks so good. You can. Listen, enjoy your Terrell Pryor. I think he's going to be fine. Maybe he can be great. Maybe he's way better than Josh Gordon. But I don't think last week proved anything. I'm so disoriented on this show because I'm always the guy that's scolding the fantasy football analysts for making too much out of the small sample size performances. And I have a couple guys I'm trying to get excited about, and they're extinguished. No. Like, small sample. No. Like, Josh Gordon's proven it no one else has. And I'm sitting here going, that's right. I just, I just trying to give a hot take and uh, you're checkmating me at every turn. This is a clinic. If we were playing chess and I'm the upstart fantasy analyst wannabe chess master, you're that guy just stalking the aisles of chess boards and you're just going check, 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 check. I can't move, Pat. I can't move. I can't get these hot takes out with you on the other side. So I'm like Bobby Fischer, except I'm not hiding out on a glacier in Iceland, getting away from everyone. Iceland is on par in terms of northernness with Canada, right? Man, your Americans' lack of geography is hilarious. <laughs> Put it this way, I, I, live, I live in Toronto, which is south of Detroit. <laughs> I love it. That's so true. We suck at geography.
<laughs> We're so bad at geography. I actually know where Iceland is. It's approximately 1,200 miles east of the southern tip of Greenland. I know exactly where it is. Don't worry. I made that up, but it sounded good. Couldn't say 1,000 miles. Had to go something like 1,200. What are, what are, what are miles? Oh, there we go again. Here we go. You're going to hold the metric system over me now? I mean, the rest of the world is holding it over you as it makes sense and isn't just arbitrary numbers. The wide receiver one, wide receiver two system needs to be replaced by some sort of wide receiver depth chart metric system at some point. We should invent it together. But you already have the fantasy take high ground. Now you're holding the metric system over me. The Kelvin Benjamin versus Devin Funches ADP gap is the most exploitable ADP arbitrage you're going to find in fantasy football, and you know how much I hate the term ADP arbitrage. Kelvin Benjamin going at slot 39 versus Devin Funches going at slot 122. A greater than 80 ADP slot difference is way too wide of a gap. We don't know who the number one receiver is going to be this year. Will it be Kelvin Benjamin or will it be Devin Funchess? It's unclear. Kelvin Benjamin needs to pass his conditioning test before we can even start to find out. But Frank DuPont, the founder of Rotoviz, tweeted today that he thinks we're a year early on Funchess. He owns Funchess in a lot of leagues. He's a Devin Funchess enthusiast, but he believes that we're a year too early with our Devin Funchess enthusiasm. And I only partially disagree with that. Here's why. The movie I watched, The Big Short, one of the most successful traders took on huge losses during 2007 when he, like many, thought the mortgages would crash a year before they actually did. He had to borrow a lot more money than he thought because it took a lot longer for the mortgage bonds to crash than he believed. He was too early. And the great quote from that movie is, when he was being challenged by investors, he said, quote, I'm not wrong, I'm just early. And the investor fired back, being early is being wrong. <laughs> and I believe that's the reason why Devin Funches could be overdrafted. If the Devin Funches enthusiasm ramps up throughout the month of August... And he crosses over into that top 100 player territory. It's conceivable that Devin Funches could be overdrafted in redraft leagues because I agree with Frank DuPont that Devin Funches is not going to start the season as the team's number one wide receiver. And there's a chance that during the month of September, Devin Funches underwhelms and that you will be able to acquire him on the waiver wire in redraft leagues as of October 1st. So I am not drafting Devin Funchess in redraft because I believe it's still a bit early for Devin Funchess. He's only 22.3 years old. He's still very young. And Calvin Benjamin is the established number one wide receiver there. So I believe that in the early weeks of 2016, those starting him may be misguided. However, I still believe this is the year that Devin Funches breaks out. So in that way, I disagree with Frank DuPont. I think this is the year, but it's going to be the second half. The team needs to be reminded that Kelvin Benjamin is inefficient. They need to be reminded that Ted Ginn is inefficient. They need to be reminded that Corey Brown is just a guy. And once all of those reminders click into place by week six, seven, eight, that's when Devin Funchess's stock will rise. That's when 
He will unfurl his wings and soar. He will be a second-half phenomenon. But if you're counting on him in week one, you're going to be too early. Tyrell Williams, on the other hand, has not slowed down. Tyrell Williams is a buy high. He's bigger than Marvin Jones, a better college dominator and better college yards per reception than Marvin Jones. And his workout metrics are better than Marvin Jones across the board. 40-time burst score, agility score, catch radius, all in the 70th percentile or above. Tyrell Williams is strikingly similar to Cameron Meredith. They're both buy highs right now. Now, Cameron Meredith isn't a buy high in redraft because his value cratered. Cameron Meredith is actually a buy low. There are buy lows out there. Certainly, there are some players who I believe will exceed expectations as the season goes on. Golden Tate was a buy low earlier in the season. Cameron Meredith is a buy low now. Tyrell Williams and Cameron Meredith are both starters on teams that will be throwing the ball a lot in the second half. Tyrell Williams is more valuable than Cameron Meredith because Tyrell Williams' quarterback is Phillip Rivers. Cameron Meredith's quarterback is Jay Cutler. Cameron Meredith is competing with Alshon Jeffrey for targets. Tyrell Williams is competing with Travis Benjamin. And now Travis Benjamin isn't practicing. He's been playing through a PCL injury, practicing on a limited basis in previous weeks, but now he's not practicing at all. That tells you that he may have suffered a setback with that PCL injury. Travis Benjamin is unlikely to play this week. And if Travis Benjamin is unlikely to play this week, you have to play Tyrell Williams in all formats. Start him in every redraft and dynasty league and get him in your DFS lineups in both cash games and GPPs. Cameron Meredith is absolutely a GPP play this week because the Bears are going to Tampa Bay and Tampa Bay is one of the friendliest pass defenses for opposing wide receivers. The highest owned wide receiver this week is going to be Alshon Jeffrey. If you're looking to stay away from the highest owned wide receiver in GPPs, our lineup optimizer, playerprofiler.com forward slash optimal dash lineup, the DFS lineup genius will not include Alshon Jeffrey in any of its GPP suggested lineups for DraftKings and FanDuel because of his high ownership. He'll be over 30% owned, so he'll be a stay away for us because there's a lot of options at the wide receiver position, including Cameron Meredith. Cameron Meredith is a buy low in redraft and a buy high in dynasty because Cameron Meredith had no value earlier in the season. And now we know Cameron Meredith can be an efficient wide receiver when given opportunity. Dynasty leaguers recognize this and savvy dynasty leaguers have been trying to acquire Cameron Meredith for the last five weeks. Buy high in Dynasty. But think about Cameron Meredith's situation. Alshon Jeffrey is going to be gone next year. Jay Cutler will be gone. So it's possible that the Chicago Bears upgrade their quarterback and there will be less competition for targets for Cameron Meredith. That's the best of both worlds. He'll be competing with Kevin White for targets. Advantage Cameron Meredith. Cameron Meredith is a far superior wide receiver talent to the historically overdrafted and overrated Kevin White. The Bears are going to draft a quarterback, but they also might bring in a veteran. They might sign, I don't know, Tony Romo, for example. Imagine the Bears with Tony Romo and Cameron Meredith in the number one wide receiver chair. That's why Cameron Meredith is a buy in Dynasty. Cameron Meredith is a sneaky buy in redraft, Dynasty, DFS. A player with tremendous efficiency... But his situation isn't changing. In fact, it may be getting worse. 
and he's league bottom in qualified air yards. Can you guess this player's name? I, I don't know. I really don't. Corderell Patterson. Ah, oh, Corderell. Corderell Patterson, 87.5% catch rate, number one in the league. Why? Because his average depth of target is low. Yes. Total air yards on the season for Corderell Patterson, 41. Yeah. 41. That's 127th in the league, yet his efficiency has been tremendous. 2.25 fantasy points per target, number three in the league because... He's compiling yards after the catch, 6.4 yards after the catch per target. He's a bigger yet worse Golden Tate. And I talked to John Paulson last week, and we were marveling at his increased target share the last four weeks. Six targets, six targets, seven targets. Wondering aloud, is this sustainable? The answer was no. Last week, no surprise, three targets. Why? Stephon Diggs was healthy, he was off the injury report, and Minnesota lost its left tackle. So Sam Bradford has less time to throw, and he has better options in the passing game than he had in the weeks prior. That will squeeze the targets out of the Cordell Patterson equation, and if he's not the guy that they're targeting on the outside, if he's not the main guy, if he's a guy they have to scheme touches for, it's a lot harder to scheme touches for players when you have defenders in your face. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, Corderell is a great use of air yards in that he was getting targets and targets are important, but they were not leveraged. There was hardly any air yards behind them. So everything he was doing was yak. Um, Yak is the least predictive of the components of air yards. Um, So it was easy to say this guy's a fade. A lot of his points came from a fluke touchdown. Um, And then you factor in all the rest of the great analysis you just gave with Diggs coming back, uh, the line being beat up. Um, Bradford probably overperforming and still only having an average offense with that overperformance. Um, it, it, it's, it's easy to understand that um, there's only probably going to be one good fantasy asset in that receiving core, and the best bet is always going to be Diggs. And the most impressive example of my take lock cure is Ted Ginn, because the entire fantasy football industry has take lock when it comes to Ted Ginn. Every week, the fantasy industry underprojects Ted Ginn, and when we look back at the end of the season, no player will be more responsible for the playerprofiler.com player rankings. Check them out. Playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. No player more responsible for us beating fantasy pros than Ted Ginn. We've projected Ted Ginn between 10 and 30 slots higher than the expert consensus over the last six weeks. Because Ted Ginn's been averaging seven targets per game since week six. Seven targets per game is significant, particularly if you have one of the league's best average depth of targets and yards per reception. Ted Ginn is a big play field stretcher getting significant targets. What's not to like? Last week, five targets, 20 fantasy points. Ding, 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 ding. Fantasy football doesn't need to be hard. Another running theme on the show. Fantasy football doesn't need to be hard. Follow the targets, play your playmakers, win fantasy leagues. Simple! Oh, but what about Earl Thomas last week? Oh, yeah. You can't like Ted Ginn against Earl Thomas. (sighs) 
what should we do? Just project all the wide receivers matched up with bad cornerbacks to have 30 points and all the wide receivers projected to match up against top 10 cornerbacks, five points. Is that what you want? Because those projections would be awful if they were only based on the opposing cornerback. And what about Earl Thomas last week? Earl Thomas got hurt because that's what happens when you base projections primarily on an external factor rather than the player himself and the player's situation. An external factor like the cornerback matchup is a secondary aspect of any projection, not the primary aspect. The two most common roots of the bad projection, number one, take lock. Number two, matchups driving the ranking and the projection, which in essence is the tail wagging the dog, the matchup wagging the player. The player should be wagging the matchup, not vice versa. I think it's wheels up for C.J. Fedorowicz. Do you? <laughs> well, he's not getting all of the snaps. He's still you know, somewhat of a part-time player, but he's carved out a, a nice role in the passing game. He's definitely the kind of two-way tight end that will be on the field. You know, He can block, and he, he, he showed at Iowa that he's a— more he's got sneaky athleticism you know he can get open and make plays and you saw that on national tv so i like him i think that you know he's definitely somebody i've been picking up this week when i'm where i'm struggling and just throwing darts at tight end you know i think that bill o'brien has traditionally favored tight ends in his offense it hasn't come to pass yet but Fedorowitz, you know he's a young guy we all know unless you're named hunter henry it takes a while for tight ends to develop their game and i think he's he's had a little breakthrough here, and I do think it's legit. Hunter Henry, by the way, the number one tight end now on the Roto Underworld Dynasty tight end rankings. Playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. He surpassed Rob Gronkowski, Jordan Reed, and Travis Kelsey in the last couple weeks because he's been super productive and he's super young. That's what you want in Dynasty. Look at CJ Fedorowicz. 66265. He has all the traits we're looking for in a fantasy tight end. He's going to be on the field in every game situation. Goal line heavy package. He's in the game. Hurry up offense. He's in the game. That's the difference between the move tight ends and the every down tight ends. The every down tight ends can be top five fantasy assets. Travis Kelsey, Rob Gronkowski. More often than not, the move tight ends are relegated to low-end tight end one status unless their name is Jordan Reed. What else does C.J. Fedorowicz have on his profile that we covet? Size-adjusted agility, 1138 agility score, 76th percentile at 6'6", 265. That's incredible. And he was a significant college producer at Iowa, as you mentioned, 21.6% college dominator. Just turned 25 years old. This is the age that tight ends typically break out. Most tight ends, as you mentioned, are not Hunter Henry. They take multiple seasons to percolate and finally ascend. And I think we're seeing it now. CJ Fedorowicz checks all the boxes. He finally had his breakout game. Six receptions, 85 yards and a touchdown. Don't wait. The moment a tight end with this profile flashes, you need to roster him in every league, especially Dynasty. So many fun new terms used on the show this season. Wheels up, one of my favorites. Don't forget, buy high, sell low. We'll always have the dude guys.
And another collaborative term myself and Rich Rebar use on the show, take lock. But maybe my favorite term of all, the take time machine. My generic-ish tout of the week, the guy that wasn't thought to be anything special heading into 2016, is Taylor Gabriel. Mm, I love that pick. I am angry at myself. If I had to go back in time, if I had a time machine, if I had a take time machine, Brad, Mm -hmm. if we could somehow consolidate our collective ingenuity and create a take time machine and go back in time... I would love to give Taylor Gabriel more thought because if I had thought more about what Taylor Gabriel could be moving from the Browns offense to the Falcons offense on a soft depth chart, I believe I would have touted him if I just had the spark, someone just sliding a note to me. With just the name Taylor Gabriel, just look at Taylor Gabriel. Check out Taylor Gabriel. Give Taylor Gabriel a chance. Look at his page on playerprofiler.com for five seconds and do with it what you wish. I believe I would have had the aha moment that Taylor Gabriel could very easily surpass Mohamed Sanu and be the secondary playmaker in that passing game. And as a secondary playmaker for the Falcons offense, this is a player with true breakout potential. And when people think of Taylor Gabriel, they just think of a cardboard cutout generic wide receiver. But he runs a 4-4-5-40. He has a 130.5, 88th percentile burst score, above-average agility score. So this is a well-above-average explosive athlete who's thrust into a situation where he's absorbing all the non-Julio Jones targets down the field. And it's no surprise that when you look at his game log, it's nothing but double-digit performances. And now this week, Mohamed Sanu is looking doubtful. So he is going to be the entrenched number two option for Matt Ryan playing against the Rams who are top five in the league and fantasy points allowed to opposing wide receivers. <sighs> Pinch me. I have Taylor Gabriel. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. In my top 25 wide receivers for week 14. Yeah, I got him as a wide receiver three uh, this week as well. I could see a touchdown for sure. I, I agree with uh, everything that you said there. Uh, again, this is going to be a Tevin Coleman and also a Taylor Gabriel game, in my opinion. I think you're going to see a lot of design screens. Oh, uh, I think you're going to oh, see a lot of uh, quick slants across the middle to Gabriel and also to Coleman. Uh, I'm not so high on Devontae Freeman as much. I know he's got four touchdowns the last couple of games. The Rams have been uh, relatively soft against the run, but... Uh, I just got a gut feeling this is going to be Coleman and Gabriel. Those are the only two guys you can really trust in this offense. With Julio Jones banged up, could be more of a decoy. Still going to draw some coverage to his side when he's on the field. So that can only benefit the short field tosses to Gabriel and Coleman. So I'm with you, man. Uh, I could definitely see, you know, a five catch, uh, 65 to 75 yard, one touchdown game. And a lot of that action coming on screen plays, which Gabriel has excelled in this season. Watch him play. And he looks electric. He really does. It's amazing how different a player can look in a different environment. You take him off grass. Put him on turf. You switch his quarterback from some combination of Brandon Whedon and Josh McCown to Matt Ryan. And suddenly he looks like one of the league's explosive playmakers. He looks like a poor man's 
Tyreek Hill when you watch him play, which is a huge compliment because Tyreek Hill is completely electric. Tyreek Hill is as if a a loose electrical wire has been left on the surface of the football field. We have a DFS lineup genius on playerprofiler.com. 10 suggested GPP plays and Taylor Gabriel and Tevin Coleman are featured across a number of those suggested lineups this week. No highlight package would be complete without bloopers. The show's most embarrassing moments. We played one earlier as I hearken back to the days when I requested a radio station play the song Far Behind from Candlebox. Here are some more Matt Kelly embarrassing moments. Based on the formulas that we use to build lineups, Kenneth Farrow was a must play. But Kenneth Farrow's fantasy performance was not even the most horrific event that occurred at the Chargers-Raiders game. No, because a security guard was caught masturbating on the sideline near the cheerleaders. Why that extraneous detail? Why? Isn't it enough that he was masturbating on the sideline? Did it matter that he was close to the cheerleaders in proximity? No! That security guard emotionally assaulted every individual within his periphery. Players, cheerleaders, team staff members, members of the media, everyone. Well, everyone with the exception of Kenneth Farrow. Because no one was masturbating to Kenneth Farrow last Sunday. Whatever the opposite of masturbation is, that's what Kenneth Farrow fantasy owners were participating in during the Raiders-Chargers game. Contact the show at Roto Underworld. Email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com. What is the polar opposite of masturbation? Let us know. Whatever that is, that's what Kenneth Farrow's fantasy owners were up to on Sunday. Not masturbating. No, there's no pleasure in watching Kenneth Farrow. None. Horrific. Kenneth Farrow's fantasy owners collectively lost millions of dollars. Millions! All the while, a security guard had his hands in his pants and was clearly pleasuring himself. But should we be surprised? No, I'm not surprised. We shouldn't be surprised that an employee of the Han Diego Dischargers was fondling himself. Or as I like to call them, the nuts and bolts. We shouldn't be surprised that an employee of the Han Diego Dischargers was fondling himself on the sideline. This is the team that started a running back named Brandon Oliver Closeoff last season. The Chargers even have a tight end on the team. Milf Hunter Henry. It's no surprise that a rogue masturbator was intercepted on the Chargers sideline last week. And now we awkwardly transition to a buzzard message. Buzzard writes in. (laughs) Milf Hunter Henry. (laughs) Nuts and bolts. (laughs) Oh, oh, buzzard writes in. Buzzard writes in. Buzzard writes in. Uh, San Diego Dischargers. (laughs) 
Roto Underworld Radio a fountain of funny. I just think there's one receiver no one's talking about, a receiver who was a tremendous college producer, unlike Chris Moore, and a guy that, in a vacuum, looks more exciting than any other player on this depth chart. A guy who looks like Julian Edelman. If I told you that Julian Edelman was going to play for the Ravens on a team that would be top five in pass attempts, would you like that? The answer would be, yes, I would like as much of that as possible. Well, that's Michael Campanaro. Michael Campanaro returned to practice. He's healthy now, and he looks like a more explosive version of Julian Edelman. And unlike Julian Edelman, he didn't play quarterback in college. He played wide receiver, and he was an epic producer at Wake Forest. He's what you're looking for in a high-volume NFL slot receiver. Why aren't we buying Michael Campanaro? Well, it's just not necessary. I mean, you don't have to draft him, right? He is literally not being taken in every single redraft league. So there's no need to take him. I mean, this is a perfect situation if you like if you like Campanero because I mean, I like him too. I agree. I have him actually on a on a uh, on a dynasty roster or two. So I'm Don't drop him. Don't you dare drop him, Kevin Cole. You drop Michael Campanero in that dynasty league, I'm going to find you. No, so I, so in, in Dynasty or anywhere where you're going to have a lot of action for guys who may be considered marginally uh, marginal prospects, you'd want to pick him up now. But in redraft, he, he this is where this is where we should be able to shine. Looking at these sorts of things that we look at, is that when he has one good game and 95% of the football universe says, "Oh, it's it's Michael Campanero. He was a late round draft pick. He's tiny." He's goofy looking, you know, anything else you can think of there. He's random. He's just a random guy. It's, it's not going to stick. Then with a very, you know, low bid, you can go ahead and scoop him up and, and, ride, and ride him those next few weeks when he breaks out. So I think that's the exact scenario. It's just something to keep in your mind for when, for when, for when he, he has that first good game. You, you have actually a window into some playing time, then that's the time to strike. But you don't need to pick him up now because then you're, you're probably just going to have to drop him once you get to bye weeks if he hasn't already emerged by that point. So why not just wait for him to, to emerge and then put a marginal bid on him and you'll probably get him. The reason why we don't need to draft Michael Campanaro in any redraft leagues is because most people that play fantasy football don't know what they're doing. And most people don't know who Michael Campanaro is, and you need to know who Michael Campanaro is. I'm going to plant this little mechanical bug in your ear. He's going to burrow into your ear, and he's going to make a little nest. And the moment Michael Campanaro receives nine targets, seven receptions, 88 yards, no touchdowns, no touchdowns, because that would get people's attention, no touchdowns. But the moment he leads the team in targets and everyone else thinks it's random, that bug is going to be activated. Beep, 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 beep. Campanaro, Campanaro, Campanaro. It's going to be my voice in this weird buggy robot voice. Campanaro. Campanaro, Campanaro. And you're just going to think, wow, you're exactly right. Kevin Cole nailed it. This is the strategy. Don't worry about any of these Baltimore receivers. Maybe Mike Wallace. Probably not. I'm not touching Mike Wallace. Kevin Cole is. I might be interested in Steve Smith. But more often than not, a Baltimore Raven wide receiver won't be touching my redraft roster. I'll just be waiting for this signal to pick up Michael Campanaro. Michael Campanaro. 
Michael Campanaro, Michael Campanaro. <laughs> you know. Or we can just laugh at my expense. John Brown is trending toward out this week with a hamstring injury due to some sickle cell trait. Again, I'm not a doctor. I don't know what that means. Michael Floyd has a hamstring injury that's been nagging him all season. He's questionable. Again, not a doctor. But what I do know is that J.J. Nelson's fast. I don't need to be a doctor. I don't need to be a physiological expert to know J.J. Nelson is fast. If we like Tyreek Hill tethered to a quarterback with a wet egg noodle arm, why don't we like J.J. Nelson, another wide receiver tethered to a quarterback that can't throw the ball downfield? J.J. Nelson can score a touchdown on any play just like Tyreek Hill because he runs a 4-2-8-40. That's 100th percentile speed, and his burst score and his agility score are both above average. J.J. Nelson will likely be the starter this week. Please just heave it downfield and give J.J. Nelson a chance. Please, Carson, please. Just need one of those flashback Carson Palmer games, a retro Carson Palmer game. Please. I like the Arizona Cardinals. I like the state of Arizona. Have you been to Arizona? Beautiful place. I was there this past week with my family for Thanksgiving. We were on a hike, and my wife wanted to take a picture. It was beautiful. Early morning hike, sun was rising, beautiful. Had the phone out. My wife kept telling me, no, you got to get this cactus in the picture. You get that mountain. You got to get the sun. You got to get everything in the photo. And I'm trying. You know with an iPhone, you're trying to get everything in the photo just right. And you're tilting the iPhone up. And you're tilting the iPhone to the side. And you're just trying to do everything you can to finagle everything into the picture area. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you always got to be those those photographers when we got the iPhone out, man. You got you to gotta act like you know what you're doing. Right. We're not doctors. We're not actually photographers, but we like to <laughs> pretend that we are in the desert where there are cactuses. So I'm on this incline and there's loose gravel and I'm trying to squat down on this loose gravel and I lose my footing and my feet come out from under me like a cartoon and I land squarely on a prickly pear cactus. What I failed to mention was that we were on a tour. We were on a guided tour, and there were other people around. I jumped up out of the cactus, and I immediately pulled my pants down, screaming. My daughter's face turned white. Her mouth was agape. She didn't know what to think. My wife is staring at me, thinking, what do I do? And I said, pull him out! Pull them out! Pull them out! And she pulled out the big long ones, but there were still these little hair width needles that you could barely see. And the rest of the day, I felt like I was sitting on a cactus because I actually sat on a cactus. I'm that guy. I'm sorry, man. That sounds like that. While I I feel bad for your misery, like that that story and the way you painted that picture with your daughter, it just it kind of made my night. So. I'm, I, are you feeling better? I mean, did you get the? How did you get the rest of the the small little pieces of the cactus out? How'd that go? When we got home, my wife and I went into the bathroom, and she performed surgery on my ass. <laughs> 
<laughs> See, I, I had to set you up. I'm sorry, man. I had to set you up for that. It was awful. <laughs> yeah, we haven't had sex since. I think she's emotionally damaged <laughs> from the whole thing. So is my daughter. I mean, everybody. So were the people in the tour with us. They looked over because they heard me scream, and then they saw my pants down, and they turned away in shocked and embarrassed horror on my behalf. I talked to people from Arizona, and I asked them, what do you do when you sit on a cactus? 35-year-olds that have lived in Arizona their whole life, they, they look at me and say, who the hell would sit on a cactus? I've never sat on a cactus. Who the hell would sit on a cactus? How does that even happen? Matt, you ruined a perfectly good family tour in Arizona, Matt. And today, Donald Trump hosted his first press conference in the White House. And earlier this season, I hypothesized that Donald Trump runs a fantasy football website. Because there was a news story on Facebook about how Donald Trump is a huge fantasy football fan. And the article speculated that he has an anonymous football Twitter account. And the Facebook news article went on to speculate that Donald Trump is running various fantasy websites from the shadows, from this anonymous Twitter account. And will Donald Trump shut down these fantasy sites once he becomes president? I doubt any of this is true because it was a news story on Facebook. So in talking to Pat and Jake, I said, we should think this through, guys. Think about it. Rotoviz is run by an anonymous account, at Fantasy Douche. Donald Trump is a douche, and Fantasy Douche likes to weave finance terms into his fantasy football analysis, like market share receiving yards. Oh. My. God. 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 And it was sad to watch Barack Obama leave the White House last night. Just recently, I realized, wow, I'm going to miss this guy. And I came across President Obama's Comedians Having Coffee in Cars with Jerry Seinfeld, and it was tremendous. I enjoyed it. I just enjoyed Jerry Seinfeld talking to the president about stuff. For 30 minutes. Again, I'm not a Democrat. I never voted for Obama. I have no political affiliation. It's not my area. I am as close to an impartial observer as you're going to find. And I was just enjoying President Obama talking to Jerry Seinfeld and not once thinking about politics while I was absorbing the conversation. It was cool. I didn't think that was possible. And then Jerry Seinfeld asked President Obama the question that made my ears tingle. He said, President Obama, if you could compare being president to a sport, which sport would it be? And President Obama said, being president of the United States of America is very similar to football. And I thought, oh, yes, yes. Do tell. Do tell, Barack. Sure enough. He had a well-articulated sports take about why being president is very similar to football. He started listing reason after reason after reason, and it was like listening to a sports podcast. I loved it. He said being president is like being the quarterback of a football team because there's a lot of moving parts, and all these moving parts have to act as one. That's a very football concept. You have a lot of specialists in all these different departments. 
and that's very football. Versatility isn't something that gets talked about very often in football. More often, it's what are you specifically good at, and how does that fit within our team structure? And that's very government and very football. And he went on, he said there's emotional decisions that have to be made in the moment, and sometimes those decisions are not rational. Whoa! Right? Right? How many times have we talked about that concept on this show? It gets even better. He then said, your job is impacted by many random events and outcomes. <laughs> I'm like, wait a second. Does this guy listen to Roto Underworld Radio? <laughs> what? Yes. There's a lot of randomness at play here. Yes. There's a lot of random events in the world <laughs> that impact the president. Yes. There's a lot of random events on the football field. It's an oblong ball being thrown in the air outside among 22 men colliding. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of random events and outcomes. You're going to see some aberrations every now and again, like C.J. Anderson's 2014 second half. And there's a lot at stake with every play, with every decision you make as president. There's a lot at stake, and with every snap of the football there is a lot at stake there's only 16 games every snap really matters more than any given pitch in baseball more than any given play in basketball and there's a lot of eyes watching obama said which is very similar the ratings on football games dwarf the ratings on any given basketball or baseball game and the same is true with the presidency all eyes are watching the decisions the american president makes and finally, the president said, it's unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen. In the NBA, you're pretty sure either the Cavs or the Warriors are going to win the championship. And sure enough, it was the Cavs, LeBron. There was no way the Boston Celtics were going to win the world championship last year. But teams that are the equivalent of the Boston Celtics win the Lombardi Trophy often in the NFL. It's the most unpredictable sport, and being president is pretty unpredictable. We can all agree. So the presidency to football analogy struck me, and him laying out that analogy in complete detail solidified my feelings that I will miss Barack Obama. That's the only political take I've ever had of the show. Barack Obama thinks the presidency is similar to football, and for that reason, I'm going to miss him. Michael Campanaro. What the fuck are you talking about? Ja, ja, eh?